Greetings ladies and mental gents and welcome to this batch video for the web novel Out of Space taken from the website Royal Road. I hope that you enjoy and if you do, please consider supporting the channel. Chapter 101 Dungeon The news of the Dragon Eye Crystals and the discovery of a dungeon in the mines had spread in the city within a week. The news brought much discussion within the citizens. Even the city broadcasting system was talking about the discovery, and everyone were both hyped and at the success of marines defeating the Empire forces, and now news had spread about the discovery of a valuable Dragonite crystals, and news of a dungeon. So what is a dungeon? Blake asked as he looked around Magister Thorne's office in the academy with interest. There were all sorts of strange and weird fetishes one would find in a museum being haphazardly placed all over the shelves. Large tombs and rolls of scrolls made out an animal hide were stuffed in all corners imaginable. Thorne sat in his chair behind his desk and furrowing his eyebrows as he thought about the question, while Princess Shireen sat opposite the desk sipping tea with Dr. Sharon. Commander Ford lounged on the sofa with his legs crossed while Master Sergeant Pike stood at parade rest next to the door. Hmm, well, a dungeon or a labyrinth is a construct left behind by a god. Thorn said, to be exact, it is an ancient spell that the gods used to create the strongest warriors. The humans looked alert as they heard the explanation. Are there really gods? Pike asked. Well, I don't know for sure if gods still exist at this time, but they sure are mentioned greatly in the ancient and historical texts during the Age of God, as the historicals call it. Thorn replied. Well, to give a brief understanding, there was a war amongst the gods in ancient time, vying for control over the heavens. You know, all that usual drama. During the Age of Gods, the gods had split into three camps. The so-called old gods who defended their place in heaven, the new gods who wanted to change and challenge the old regime, and the neutral gods who sat on the fence and watched the show. Massive armies formed from both magic and recruited from mortal realm waged war amongst themselves, following the orders of the gods. The one appeared to be giving a lesson in history on humans. But what the old gods and new gods did not know was that the neutral gods watched and learned as they created these dungeons and labyrinths to create the best soldiers for their own armies. And when the time came when both old and new gods were weakened, the supposedly neutral gods attacked them with their armies, crushing all opposition from both sides, Thorn said. But at the final fight in the heavens, the old gods used a spell which ended the war, but followed that all the traces of the gods vanished. So you meant the goblins and dragons were created by gods, Dr. Sharon asked. Her eyebrows raised up in disbelief. Even the people. Well, in a way, yes, Thorn added. The magical creatures that you see now are the descendants of the gods' magical armies. For us, the people, legend has it that we are the children of the gods without any godly power, nor the immortal lifespan of a god. Thus, we are called mortals. Wow, Blake spoke up. But the question is how do the dungeons fit in, as to how do they work and create the best warrior? Oh... I am not very sure, Thorn said sheepishly. I only know that it is a maze and that the creatures fight constantly and the victor will be picked by the gods. Wait, that sounds familiar, Pike spoke up. Isn't some kind of Japanese kuduku? Or the Chinese call it goo, except for the poisonous insects monsters are instead. Now that you said it, it does sound so, Blake frowned. 
So we got some kind of ancient construct from the age of the gods as in our backyard. Nice. Kuduku. Ku? I would like to know more about them, please. And you are looking at a source of mana stones, yes? Thorn said. Well, the monsters inside the dungeon will drop mana stones after getting defeated. What? The humans cried out at the same time. There's something so convenient. Well, each dungeon or labyrinth has a heart. It is basically a huge mana stone that attracts the dead spirits of creatures, Thorn explained. And there must be a huge abundant supply of magical energy, like a ley line that can accept it. A massive magic formation is created at points of magic energy naturally gathers. This is used to power the magic array in the dungeon heart. Use these energies, the dungeon heart will use the spirits and creatures it gathers, forming bodies, bringing the spirits into life with flesh and blood, Thorn frowned. As to how it all came back, you will have to ask the ancient gods. It acts like some kind of magnet to attract spirits and souls. That's amazing, Dr. Sharon exclaimed. I can't wait to explore it. I don't think that's just a good idea, Doc, Ford said. How deep or large will the dungeon be? Ford asked Thorn. Well, I explored a couple of dungeons in my days, Thorn said proudly. Depending on the magic source, it can go from three to four stories underground to a hundred levels. There used to be a couple dungeons within the Gold Rose Kingdom. Both were small dungeons and mostly used by adventurers to hunt for monsters. For this dungeon, I suspect it'll be around ten to fifteen levels deep, Thorn guessed. We will only know when we explore it. Wait, so the dungeon has creatures inside. So what happens if we kill everything? Pike asked. And what happens if we remove the dungeon heart? Oh, most countries forbid the removal of dungeon hearts, as the creatures inside will reappear again after it's been defeated. Thorn answered. Usually it takes two days or more for the monsters to reappear. Adventurers normally use dungeons to hunt materials and items from the monsters as way. And the country with the dungeon charges an entrance fee. So, the monsters respawn, Pike's eyes glowed, so we can keep farming the monsters for mana stones. Oh yes, Thorn nodded, but the treasures and artifacts don't spawn when you take out the dungeon. Wait, Blake stopped Thorn. There are treasures and artifacts. Of course, Thorn said again. Well, the gods wanted to entice mortals and creatures to join their armies in the past, so it's common to have a treasure and artifices stored inside the dungeons. As for the heart, Thorn said, removing it will destroy the dungeon. The monsters wouldn't respawn anymore and the dungeon will become a lifeless structure. So I would advise to not touch the heart at all if you want a constant source of mana stones. Great. Blake looked at Ford, who grinned. So we should lock down the dungeon first to prevent anyone from entering till our forces clear it first. Well, you can charge a fee for anyone willing to enter the dungeon, Thorn shrugged. That's how it was done normally. How difficult would the dungeon be? Pike asked again. Do many people die exploring the dungeon? That depends on the dungeon type, Thorn replied. Also, it does get harder the deeper you venture into the dungeon, and if you encounter champions or even bosses inside, some dungeons are even well known for the mechanical traps and devices. There have been many deaths in the past till the adventure guilds tend to assign a grade to known dungeons, from rank 1 to rank 5 with five being the hardest, Thorn continued. It helped reduce the number of deaths greatly, as the guild also assigned a rank to each adventurer, so they know what's the approximate level for them to enter the dungeon. Do you have champions and bosses? Dr. Sharon excitedly asked before looking at Captain Blake. 
Captain requests permission to be a part of the exploration team. Blake groaned and shook his head. Doc, please, it's dangerous, and we can't have anything happen to you. Well, you can have the Claymore One to escort me, Dr. Sharon argued. I'd been in a dungeon too when I was younger. Princess Shireen suddenly spoke up. It was all right. I and my brothers fought against someone dead. Princess, you are not helping, Blake muttered, shaking his head. <laughs> Ford laughed. Doc, let the marines take a look first. If Pike deems the danger level to be acceptable, then we organize you and a team to enter the dungeon. How's that, Captain? Blake nodded. Yes, and Princess, no, you don't get to go either. Both Sharon and Shireen pouted and started whispering some conspiracy between themselves. All right, so to sum it up, this dungeon can provide us with a steady supply of mana stones, Blake summarized. Also, a chance of finding treasure and magical artifacts, but we do not know what grade the dungeon is. So how do the guilds grade the dungeons? Blake further asked. By the number of levels and monster types, Thorn said. Generally, a dungeon up to 5 levels deep is a rank 1, up to 10 is a rank 2, 20 is a rank 3 and 30 is a rank 4, and anything more than 40 is a rank 5. So, do you estimate our dungeon to be a rank 2 or 3? Ford asked, which Thorne nodded. Great. So who wants to form a party? Me, me! Dr. Sharon hopped up and down, excited. Her short 150 centimeter height made her look like a child at times. Especially now. Blake sighed and glared at her till she settled down quietly in a chair. As we had said, wait till we assess the danger level. So, I would like to volunteer the 101st of armed recon the dungeon first, Pike said. How's the wounded Claymore one member? Blake asked. He was alright now. He'll be having nightmares for a while, but there aren't any long-lasting effects to his mental health. Dr. Sherrod answered. He shouldn't be possessed or carry any unwanted things on him. He just failed his sanity check. Yes, sir. Doc has given him a clean bill of health, Pike said. I would like to have a hundred and firsts run through the dungeon as a training exercise for them. You know, idle hands are the devil's tools and all that. And I do so love the live fire exercise. I see, Blake grinned and rubbed his chin. All right, Top, I improve. Send them in for a look-see. If things get too hot, pull them back. Yes, sir, Pike acknowledged. I will have them map the dungeon out as well. And also, a company of marines will be in support should they need any more firepower. All right, next. How are the test results for the Dragonite Crystals? Blake asked Dr. Sharon next. Are they suitable for use in form of a fuel? Oh, very. Dr. Sharon smiled. Apparently, we can refine it into a liquid form which works similarly to gasoline. In fact, the octane index is rated just at 90, just purely on its own. And with a few minor refinements, we can make aviation-grade fuel as you have requested. I think so far this is the best turn of events since the incident involving those deserters, Blake said. I got plans for a couple of all-wooden construction airframes, just what we lack is fuel and proper weapons for them. Now that we have the fuel problem solved, we need to solve our gunpowder issues, Blake continued. Black powder really isn't suited for fully automatic weapons. Fire a few dozen rounds in it and the weapon will jam. Top. I would like you to prioritize on research and making a smokeless powder, Blake instructed Pike. Artillery can be put on hold. If we have a smokeless powder, the problems caused by black powder in the breech-loading artillery will also be solved too. Also, anti-air artillery, Blake raised up next. We need some sort of delayed or proximity fuses for anti-aircraft shells. 
we can't use impact fuses against flying targets. Intel has estimated that if the Duke's forces of roughly 20,000 regular troops get supported by 100 dragons, the main standing army of the Empire of half a million would have at least 2,500 dragons on call, not counting the irregular or the reserves if they have it. End of chapter. Chapter 102 Peace Through Superior Firepower Sawtooth Mountain Pass, Marine Support Base. The concrete handle doors laid open and Lieutenant Commander Tommy walked past the parked Valkyries undergoing maintenance by the crude techs. He paused to admire the squat, haunched, rigged look of the birds and walked towards the office at the end of the hangar. He entered the side office and found Captain Blake and Chief Matt had already gathered around his office desk. Sir, he quickly gave a salute. At ease, Commander. Here, take a seat. Blake gestured Tommy to an empty chair while pouring a bottle of whiskey into a glass and passing it to him. Since this is an unofficial meeting, so I brought some drinks. Blake grinned as the three of them toasted. Cheers! So what's the meeting about, sir? Tommy asked after taking a swig of whiskey. Well, it's about the formation of the Air Force, of course. Blake replied as he took out a tiny display stand and placed it on the desk and switching it on. A holographic 3D model of a biplane appeared, slowly rotating above the circular display stand. This is a World War I British Aircon DH-2 biplane model, Blake said, designed by Sir Geoffrey de Havilland, who later formed the de Havilland Aircraft Company, which built and designed one of the most successful multi-role combat aircraft in World War II. The de Havilland DH-98 Mosquito, which frame is built amongst entirely out of wood and also built the first commercial jet airliner in the world. A bit of history buff and I got a hobby of 3D horror kit modeling old planes, Blake explained. I am thinking of using this as a base design for our first aircraft here. The DH-2 runs on a pusher configuration and is designed as very maneuverable and relatively easy to fly. Historically, its engine is prone to stalling, but we should be able to fix its stalling issues. Isn't it too primitive? Tommy raised his eyebrows as he took a sip of the whiskey. It looks flimsy. Won't a monoplane tracer design be better? Well, compared to everything we have, yep, yep, very primitive, Blake agreed, as he poured another round of whiskey. But considering the technological knowledge and resources we have, this is a good learning and starting point for our people to learn how to build and design aircraft. Chief Matt nodded. Cap here has a point. We know how to maintain the space bus, turn Valkyries and UAVs due to that was what we were taught and we have the manuals, but straight up building an aircraft. Well, frankly, I doubt anyone has the proper expertise to building one. Not to mention, knowing the cap, he plans to build our aircraft using the metal wood and metal metal bonding techniques. Even me, if you ask me about building your car, I could still wing it, but a whole aircraft? It's gonna be hard, Chief Matt admitted. This design here is at least looks familiar in ultralights which could some of my boys have some experience on. It'll be a good learning lesson for everyone involved in this project. Tommy nodded and picked up the hollow kit, examining the plane. So the wings are made out of some kind of fabric. Well, for the frame, we can use wood and nanocarbon tubes, while with the wings, we can opt to using limited salvage stock of carbon fiber polymer or even treated leather, Blake said. Matt will work with these guys in coming up with a way to use the wood as a main material to replace metals such as aluminium and other advanced materials, which we have no way to reduce. The owls appear to be quite proficient in woodworking techniques, and hopefully we can work something out, 
Matt grinned next. If not, we try magic. The aircraft will be a twin-seater pusher-design aircraft with wind resistance and weight reduction runes and at least 200 horsepower engine. It'll be more than enough for our current needs. I plan to have the aircraft both proper canopy instead of an open-air top. The forward gunner will be more like a ball turret carrying a dual heavy gun machine guns, while the aircraft primarily carries cannons or rocket pods, Blake said. But, of course, only after we get a prototype up and flying, then we see what we can do to upgrade it to more modern standards. And with the fixed-wheel carriage, we won't even need a proper runway for them to take off and land, as long as their field is flat and without any foreign objects and debris littering the field, Blake grinned. So, that is a lot of guesswork and ifs, Tommy pointed out. We don't even have a combustion engine yet. <laughs> I know, that's why we're drinking now, Blake joked before looking serious. Look, Chief Matt here already has plans to design a nine-cylinder air-cooled radial engine rated at 200 horsepower. We already successfully built a prototype five-cylinder air-cooled radial engine, roughly rated at one horsepower, and tested it, Chief Matt said next. We used the methane and ethanol fermented from potatoes as a fuel for the prototype, and it somewhat worked. What we lacked is a substantial fuel source, as using potatoes currently, just to make fuel as a dip in our food stocks are greatly, Chief Mac continued. But now we found out that Dragonite crystals are similar to our fossil fuels, and it is more efficient and cheaper to produce compared to using the producing methane or ethanol. So now, with more power, 9-cylinder engine can go into testing phrase once the fuel has been refined and tested, Blake finished. Well, I chose the DH2 is also because it can be built by hobbyists in their own garage, Blake smiled. I got the exact specifications and plans that came along with the hollow model kit. I want you to do this project not only because you're the Air Force commanding officer, but also due to your previous experience in firing monoplanes, he said. How are the dragons? I see. Tommy nodded. He had prior experience flying monoplanes in the past. I'm coming out with a doctrine for the dragon combat with Blue Thunder and a training manual for integrating dragons into the whole combined arms doctrine. From what we know, the Empire Dragon Tactics, they group 20 middleweights and two heavyweights into a unit, or a core as Blue Thunder explained to me. Tommy explained. The heavyweights are the anvil while the middleweights work as the hammer. They will conduct harassing tactics against enemy dragons to force the enemy to close in with them and use the heavies to punch through while the mid-flank can distract. Tommy finished his drink and one swallow. It would work well against the enemies whose numbers are lesser than theirs, which is all the time. When engaging heavy against heavy, they normally have a dragon exchange at long-range breath attacks, like fireballs and stuff, then close in crossbow range, which, from what Blue Thunder tells me, the crossbow bolts tend to have special spells inscribed on them to hurt a lot. The next and final move is a boarding action, which the crew on either side jumps onto each other's dragons and try to kill the crew or take the captain hostage while the dragon tends to surrender. That sounds like old-school age-of-sail naval action. Range with cannons and close in before entering boarding action. Blake raised his eyebrows. Tommy nodded. That's why I'm coming up with a new doctrine against the Empire Dragons. Just hit them from afar before they can come into crossbow range, Chief Matt suggested. Or have aircraft like what Tommy suggested gun them down before they can react. Yes, Chief, Tommy nodded. 
The first prototypes proved themselves. I will switch to aircraft as main force while the dragons will be playing the roles of bombers and close air support. Apparently, the autopsy results from Dr. Sharon explains a bit of how dragons with over 30 to 40 ton weight can fly. Tommy shared some information he'd gotten from Dr. Sharon. The dragons have a sacks of air in their lungs and chest cavities that fill with hydrogen. Seems like their lungs are able to process hydrogen from the air that they breathe in and stores them in sacs and the organs of their body. The compressed hydrogen provides the lift for the dragons, and Dr. Sharon believes that it is how they are able to breathe out spit fire. Tommy continued, and with their innate magical abilities to fly is most likely a weight reduction. That's probably how something heavier than a dinosaur could fly even without hollow bones. Even the scales of the dragons are almost similar in the properties of Kevlar, Tommy shook his head. Anything short of a 12.7mm is not going to do crap against the dragon. I did plan to put 20mm autocannons on planes, Blake hinted, provided that we can come up with smokeless propellant soon. So to sum it up, Chief Matt downed his drink in one gulp. It's all magic. Well, yeah, in a nutshell, Tommy laughed. I'm starting not to question any weird crap this planet throws at me anymore. I just explain it as magic. Yeah, but we need to know how these magic can help us, Blake said, and I'm not really keen on fighting half a million troops from the Empire, even if I have a nuke. I seriously wouldn't want to nuke them. Why, sir? Tommy asked, curious. Why not nuke them with everything is solved? Have you ever thought that we were here accidentally? What right do we have to meddle in alien planet's politics? Blake asked. How would you feel if an alien race came to nuke us, like the swarm? Um... All-out war? Either they die, or we die, Tommy guessed. You have it, Blake said. Look at the swarm. We didn't provoke them, and yet they are determined for our destruction. In this case, we helped a group of refugees in this planet from another nation, Blake explained. To us, we might be self-righteous in saving these people, but what other has the other side? To them, we are rebels, despite all that slavery crap. To them, we are the meddling ones. So does that make it right if we use have a weapon of mass destruction to bomb them for the following their culture, beliefs, and ideas that are alien to us and are alien to them? Blake pointed out. Also, the collateral damage. Are we willing to take the blame for killing countless unknown innocents? And the UN banned the use of nuclear weapons on green planets in 2061, peace accords, to prevent events such as serious incident where the Chinese nuked the French colony and kicked the planet's ecosystem into nuclear hell, wasting 30 years of terraforming efforts. Not to mention, we lack any means to produce a nuke, or even to perform any nuclear cleanup, Blake added. Almost all of our equipment for that was lost in the rear portion of the ship. If that's the case, why are we helping the natives? Chief Matt asked. Shouldn't we be minding our own business? I wish it could be that simple, Chief, Blake sighed. We crash-landed here without anything except what was on board the ship. The locals can provide us with food and a workforce for our survival needs. If we reject them, our current food and industrial capabilities won't be able to what it is today, Blake explained. Almost 90% of the crew are all city kids, without any proper skills of surviving out in the wild. That's why we need them just as they needed our help. It's one of the reasons why I want to make this war with the Empire be freaking expensive, making each loss so great that they take years to recover and forcing them to negotiate with us instead of sending more troops against us. 
and not only that, we don't have any means of returning home yet, and most likely, we will have to stay here for generations. So, having the natives integrate with us also helps our objectives in surviving in the long run. Blake gave a sigh and stared at the bottle of whiskey. And the creatures and monsters here, all being hostile with our fighting force despite being first grade, are very limited. Having locals as a part of our armed forces also boosts our survival rate. But to do that, we need to have a war machine capable of crushing any force sent against us. We don't have the manpower or the need to invade the Empire. That's why I'm pushing weapons development more than civic development for now. Blake poured another round of drinks for everyone and gave them a toast, throwing back his head and finishing the whole glass in one shot. Peace through superior firepower, which is... End of chapter. Chapter 103 Golems Following the discovery of Dragonite Crystals and the appearance of a dungeon, the mining station underwent a frenzy of changes. A company of marines was dispatched to reinforce the mining station and provide security to the miners. As Captain Blake's jeep rumbled to a stop in the parking lot, he noticed several large rocky figures pushing carts full of soil along the tracks. The strong stench of waste assailed Blake's nose as a gentle breeze blew over the smell over. Hey, Blake stopped one of the workers along the way and pointed at the weird rock figures working in the yard. What are those? The worker looked at Blake at his dirt-covered face and gave a toothless grin. New year? I'm those of Mistress Irishwell's Akmakal. Akmakal. Blake scratched his head as he repeated the unfamiliar common tongue word. Mistress Irishwell? You don't know who Mistress Irishwell is? The worker looked at Blake's confused face like he was some country bunkin. Well, let me tell you then. Mistress Irishwell is our mining community benefactor. The elf pointed to the animated rock figures and said, With her help, those Akmakal do the work of three men, greatly helping us increase our output and work, he said proudly. Hmm, Blake rubbed his chin, watching the slow movements of the rock figures. He thanked the worker and walked up to the next one with a working statue. His closer view he moved to statue looked like a hunk of rock with very humanoid features, chiseled out of the surface. The featureless lump served as a head, with two large broad chest and a wide shoulders, with two blocky arms dangling down its stubby legs, ending in the knee area. Each hand in three digits and looked like a clamp. One of the rock figures was unloading a cart of soil into a vat, and Blake stood next to it, ignoring the stench as it towered over Blake, taller than a four-meter-tall vat, which a platform of stairs was constructed on the other side for workers. Blake wrapped his knuckles against the stone legs and the Akmakal paused its work, turning its speechless face to him. The Akmakal appeared to examine Blake before returning back to work, carefully shaking the cart of saltpeter rich soil into the vat. God damn! Blake whispered in wonder. These things appear to be made out of solid rock or stone, yet it would move an arm and legs as if it were made out of solid matter. What kind of magic is this? Captain! Someone called out from the processing plant, and Blake turned and saw Petty Officer Letts, dressed in work overalls, safety helmet, and a face mask. What are you doing here, sir? Oh, I'm just here to look around, Blake said, with a gesture to the stone figure working behind him. New help? <laughs> so you met our new automations. Letts grinned as he led Blake towards the admin building. The locals call them elementals, which translates into elementals or golems. 
Where did they come from? Blake asked. From the dungeon. No, no, it's the girl whom you sent over. Made them, let's confirmed. Irishval von Aston, she made them. Blake stopped in his tracks and stared at Let's. I know she is an earth elementalist, but she has the power to do that. Actually, no. She can make a baby-sized golems, and they would only have enough magic to power it to last about an hour before the, she has to transfer her magic to power it again. Let's continued. At the start, she wanted to use baby golems to help out with the mining work, but it depleted her energy greatly. I see. Then looking at this giant, I say that there has been some kind of breakthrough. Break guessed. Oh yes, let's grin, even winder. Those dragonite crystals, it seems they are a chock full of magic power and goodies inside. Well, she placed one of them crystals into the baby golems and it ran like some energizer bunny. Its operating time lasted a solid three days and it's still running. So we experimented with the larger version of the golems and it powers them as well. Let's priority said. We managed to gauge that per 100 grams of Dragonite crystals is equal to roughly 5 hours of battery life for these monsters. Let's gestured to the giant golem, diligently unloading the contents of the mining carts. Just as a trio of baby-sized golems carried the crate over their heads and ran past Blake and disappearing around a corner. It has a very basic intelligence, so you need to tell it specifically on what you want it to do. Seems to work well with programming style commands, Let's said. It got a couple of IT eggheads to see what we can apply programming language onto the magic core to see if they can write some kind of basic AI for them. That is outstanding, Blake praised, seriously impressed by Let's's mind and initiative. How do they move their arms and legs if they're a solid rock? I don't have an answer for that, Let's shrugged. Even if you ask Irishwal, she will just tell you it's magic. Maybe Dr. Sharon or Chief Matt might explain with science. Hmm, interesting. Blake and Let's entered the main admin building where Let's started up to strip his work overalls and safety gear. Keep me constantly updated on the Gollum AI development. Yes, sir. Almost strangely, we can't use concrete for Gollums. Let's added with Let Blake towards the officers. Ishval said something about a living rock and concrete has no life or something along those lines. Let's opened up the door to his main office and a room with several desks against the wall with two other staff could be seen working, building columns and ticking checklists in the thick books. Welcome to Mining Incorporated, Let's grinned. That's my office and this is where my staff handles the records and the output of the other expenses and accounts. That's Irishwal's office right on the right. Looks like she's not in. Ata, let's turn to the young female elf with blonde hair who was busily punching numbers into a calculator amidst a messy pile of paper around her desk. Where is Irishwal? Mistress Irishwal. The blonde elf paused her work and an irritated look. She should be at her workshop. She's returned to her work, ignoring the two of them. Sorry, let's smiled an apology at Blake. They are hard-working and focused. Blake grinned and followed Let's out of the admin building and back into the courtyard. Why are they calling her mistress? I think it's a form of respect due to her powers. Let's shrugged. Seriously, I'm also not so sure why. Oh, here we are. A large two-story wooden shed with both its large swing doors open, painted in red, stood three and other similar buildings in parallel. A large white floor was painted on the side of the workshop, and a pair of rail tracks led into the open doors. As they entered the workshop, Blake noticed there were many cranes and hoists all over the ceiling, their chains hanging overhead. 
At the center of the workshop, a magic formation was drawn and carved into the floor. Drawings of unknown symbols, signs and runes were drawn all over the walls and floor, followed by cables snaking all over the flooring. If the lighting and the atmosphere of this workshop weren't so bright and sunny, he would have thought he'd entered some sort of cultist den. Work tables occupied both sides of the workshop with several monitors, laptops and tools of all kinds. Scrolls, candles and jars of unidentifiable stuff laid haphazardly all over the tables while a radio was blasting some rock and roll. Stairs on the side led to a plankway and the second floor to a bridge suspended over the middle of the room. A huge rock boulder, over four meters tall and two meters wide, with the moss still present on its surfaces, sat in the middle of the magic formation, where a pair of tracks cut right through it. They must have tracks to travel the rock over here using the carts and then the cranes to hoist over the formation, thought Blake. As they neared the rock, a head full of thick silvery hair tied in a ponytail appeared on the other side. He saw a girl dressed in a pair of dirty work overalls carrying a bowl of what he assumed to be liquid silver and brush, drawing some arcane symbols onto the rock's surface. Letts cleared his throat and coughed, and the girl who was humming along to the tune jerked up and noticed the two of them standing at the entrance. Oh, boss Letts! She cheerfully called out and placed her work tools down on the side. She removed her gloves and paused, recognizing Blate and pulling up straight. Ah, my lord, she cried in surprise, and quickly went down on her knees to kowtow, much to Let's and Blake's amusement. It's all right, Blake waved her to get up. You don't have to do that here or call me lord. Just sir or captain will do. Is that what do you call it, an Akimakal? Yes, my lord, sir. Ishabal blushed as she quickly got up. Yes, this is an Akimkal, or a golem, as you call it in English. Amazing, Blake walked around the rock with his hands behind his back, looking at the arcane symbols and runes drawn here and there. How does it work, thinking that Dr. Sharon would go ape if she knew about these? Sir, I cast an enchantment spell on the rock, making it come to life, Ishabal explained as simple as possible. My magic will grant it life and it follows my orders or anyone imprinted with my magical mark. It will continue to be able to move and do simple commands until that its magical reserves run out or if I remove my magic. Can anyone just remove its magic? Blake asked as he stopped next to the silverhead elf. No, only by destroying its core and only if me can stop it, Erishwal replied. Normally, my magic allows a much smaller version of the Akimkal to be made. They normally work as a simple servants, carrying objects for you and last an hour or two before they need to recharge them, but with my magic. But she turned to the table at the side and picked up a blood-red crystal of quartz. Dragonite crystals, this can increase the lifespan and strength of the chemical, allowing me to increase the size of it. And Boss Letts has someone helping me to program the chemical, allowing us to give them more complex instructions, Irishpal added, gesturing to the computers and tables. How do you program them? Blake asked curiously. For me, the spells I draw on the chemical are mixed with instructions like walking, running, lifting and other basic movements, Irishpal explained. To human Taijun Pak is helping me analyze my enchantments with those devices. She points at the pillars in the workshop where the cameras could be seen. Where is he now? Blake asked. I would like to talk with him. I think he has gone to lunch, Irishwal shrugged. He should be back soon. 
Senior Spaceman Tanjun Park, Let's said, is our IT support here, responsible for the robotic mining drones that we have. But since we are not using them, and he saw this Irishwal we're doing here, I signed him over to see if he can do anything to help out. Apparently, he thinks that he can crack the drawings she's making on the golems, Let's continued. He thinks that as long as he can crack it, he can work with some kind of programming code and laser print it onto more complex enchantments for the golems. You know, like some basic AI stuff. Damn. Blake turned and looked at Let's in excitement. If he succeeds, you know what? We can have freaking heavy combat walkers. End of chapter. Chapter 104. Looking for group. Third Sergeant James Bone of the 1st Marine Battalion, 1st Company, 3rd Platoon, leapt down from the tailgate of the military half-track, his boots slamming down on the hard concrete. He took a look around and grabbed his weapon and gear off the storage bin. Other than the smell, the mining outpost looked neat and tidy. He walked towards a large sign with an arrow that said, Marines, and entered the building where an elf with corporal stripes, most likely newly promoted after the Battle of the Pass, sat on a duty behind the desk at the lobby. Sergeant, how can I help you? The corporal stood and parade attention. Here, I'm supposed to find top, James said as his orders printed on a paper over the corporal who took a quick glance before directing to the top floor informing him to hand over his weapon to the armory behind him before going up. James nodded and headed over to the armory, dropping off his magelock, single-action revolver, machete and ammunition before climbing the stairs up behind the third floor, where he entered a large room with chairs set out in rows enough for twenty people. Some of the chairs were occupied and James spotted a familiar face and carried his gear over, flopping next to the shortly cropped red hair grinning at him. Hey James! Betty Officer Second Class Christine looked up at him as he sat next to her. How's it going? Can't be better, James smiled at Christine. Long time no see, how are you? Busy, she smiled back, teaching the natives in the academy most of the time. She rolled her eyes. Oh... What subjects? James asked as he removed his load-bearing harness. English and mathematics, she replied. I also help out with basic computer knowledge, too. I thought you majored in archaeology and history, if I remember correctly. James furrowed his eyebrows in thought. Why are they getting you to teach stuff like that? Apparently, being from Cambridge makes you wildly popular with the higher-ups, Christine explained. Well, blame me for acing my English and math scores. James gave a low whistle. So, teacher Christine, what brings you here? He gestured around the meeting room. Beats me, she shrugged and leaned back against the chair. How about you? Oh, mine simple, James kicked back and yawned. Got pulled into the instructor at Camp Alpha, trained out a batch of marines, and then the Empire came for round two. We kicked the rears. That sounds simple, Christine grinned. So, know anything about why they call us here? She looked at the other side of the group of elves dressed similarly to James, who was mostly dozing off in the chairs. They are from the 101st Team Claymore 1. James gave a quick explanation. Seems like something big is going to happen if they're here too. Hope it is nothing to do with the dungeon the radio keeps talking about all week, Christine said. I don't know if I can go into another tunnel again. 
Hmm. Well, to be frank, I think it has to do with the dungeon, James gave his guess. You and me being in the ruins, and you being knowledgeable Cambridge girl, and a major in archaeology, and have proven capable under fire. No, please stop, Christine pleaded. I have nightmares about that. Come on, if we go in, at least this time we are more prepared, James grinned. It will be like a role-playing game now. Go in, kill monsters, find treasure. What's with you guys about killing and treasure? Christine moaned, just as the door opened and several people entered the room. Magister Thorne, Dr. Sharon Top, Captain Blake, and an unfamiliar silver-haired elf entered together, and Top yelled, Attention on deck! The dozing Claymore One team woke up immediately and followed James and Christine, shut up in a parade attention, and saluted as one. Captain Blake saluted back. At ease, men! The other, Dan Top, who stood at parade rest at the door, the rest of the group found the seats in the room and settled down. All right, I have called everyone here for a mission. Blake began to brief. By now, everyone has heard of the dungeon, right? Nods were returned from everyone, so we are going to explore it. Claymore 1 will be split into two, Squad 1 and Squad 2. We'll be under the command of Master Sergeant Pike and supported by Magister Thorne. Blake started to assign team roles. The second party will be Squad 3 and Specialist Sergeant Tyria under the command of Sergeant James and supported by Petty Officer Kirstine and, um, Mistress Irishwell. They seated soldiers nodded at Blake's instructions while Christine's face fell. Dr. Sharon will be providing support remotely at the operation center here. Now, this dungeon is something most of us are new to, Blake said next. Magister Thorne will give you a brief of roughly what you can expect to find inside. Magister Thorne, Blake invited Thorne up. Thank you, sir. Magister Thorne stood up and faced the group. Well, I entered two dungeons when I was younger, back in the days, he smiled. What can we expect inside? For one, monsters, but that types or species we won't know until we explore the place, Thorne said. Next, traps. There might be some, or there might not be any. Also dependent on the dungeon. For this dungeon, we estimate using ground-penetrating radar that will be roughly 13 levels deep. Blake added, the size of the levels is roughly one acre or less. The radar could only pick up rough patches of subsurface objects and changes in the material properties, but not the layout of the tunnels and rooms. So we will be going in to explore and map out the first level and see what's inside first. Thorne continued, the monsters get stronger as the levels deepen, so it should be easy for us to clear the first level. Okay, any questions? Blake asked. Christine raised a hand. Sir, why do you need me here? I want you and a team as due to your archaeology experience, and since you've been under fire before, I can keep your cool head. Blake smiled. James silently mouthed, I told you so, which made Christine roll her eyes and gave a glare to James, who grinned back. You are all allowed to use deadly force, and the rest is up to the team leader's discretion, Blake continued. Also, gather all materials you could from the monsters back for research purposes. You will be carrying your standard weapons except for team leaders, who will be issued with M7s just in case. Anything else? Blake asked. No. Okay, you will set off tomorrow at 0900 hours. Gather the ops room at 0700 hours for final briefing. Team leaders to gather at 0600 hours. Clear? Aye, aye, Captain. The men chorused and broke into the teams. James stood in the corner while his team gathered around him. 
He looked at the three Claymore One soldiers who greeted him. Sergeant James, you're the one of our instructors at Camp Alpha. Tyria grinned. Great, James grinned back. Let's introduce ourselves to each other. He gestured to Tyria to start. I'm Specialist Sergeant Third Class Tyria Lotus. I'm Claymore One's team leader. Corporal Droth Leoden, Squad 3 Sharpshooter and Support Medic, Team Claymore 1. Um, Petty Officer 2nd Class Christine Perry, Auxiliary Department. I work in the life support systems. Apparently, I have knowledge of studying ancient ruins. That is why I'm here. Sergeant 2nd Class James Bone, 1st Marine Battalion, 1st Company, 3rd Platoon. And all eyes turned to the last member of the team, the silver-haired girl. She looked uneasy and spoke in a soft voice. Irishval von Aston, I'm an Earth Elementalist. The Claymore One guys whistled and wowed as they heard Irishval was an Elementalist, much to the confusion of James and Christine. Tyria, seeing their confusion, explained, An Elementalist is a very rare in this time and age. They have the ability to control the elements, and for Irishval, she said she's an Earth Elementalist, meaning she can control the Earth. Compared to your magic power, James asked, more powerful... Oh yes, Tyrion nodded. Say, if I wanted to compare her magic versus mine involving the use of Earth Element, Irishwall's level 1 spell would be equal to my level 3 spell, even if it's the same spell using the same amount of mana power. But compared to other elements, she will be weaker, especially against water-based spells, but not strong versus air-based spells, Tyria further explained, inciting a shy nod from Irishwall. Very interesting... James rubbed his chin, wondering how he should deploy the team. All right, let's take a break for now, and let's meet up again later to discuss the dungeon after lunch. How's that? Everyone agreed and nodded. So where do we meet up? The cafeteria. Sure, why not? Everyone was new to the area and does not know where he would ask to go. But Irishwell stopped them. Why not come to my workshop? It's quieter there and easier to talk. You have a workshop here, James raised an eyebrow. Yes, I work here, she timidly replied she wasn't too good with new people. Great, let's go there instead, James declared and got her to give her the location of the workshop. Workshop number four. All right, let's meet later. Two hours later, the group gathered inside the large wooden building with a huge number four painted on the side, with Irishwell waving at them at the entrance. Welcome to my workshop, she gave a shy smile. Come in. Why do they call you mistress? James asked as they entered the workshop, seeing two hulking rock sculptures set in the middle of the building surrounded by drawings on the floor. Um, I think they call me that as a form of respect after I helped some of the miners during a cave-in. Erishrol blushed. I told them not to, but they still insist. I see, James nodded. The rest looked around the brightly lit interior of the workshop curiously and saw a human sitting behind some computers at one side of the room, tapping away at his keypad with a radio running some music behind him. Is sculpting your hobby? Christine asked as she peered at the featureless face of the rock statues. Is this your workshop where you make sculptures? The Claymore One members laughed as they heard what Christine said and replied, Ma'am... Mistress Irishwal here is an earth elementalist, meaning these sculptures are her Akamakal. Akamakal? James and Christine looked at the surprised and confused and unfamiliar word. What's that? Tyria grinned. I guess you guys just arrived and haven't seen anything here yet. He wrapped his fingers against the hard rock surface and gestured to Irishwal to explain. 
Um, an Akkem cull is a golem or a puppet, in other words, Erishwal explained. We will be bringing these two upgraded golems with us tomorrow to act as our support. Wait, what? James cried out. You mean these rock sculptures can move? Of course, Sergeant, a voice suddenly cut into the conversation, and an Asian man dressed in a grey jumpsuit with rolled-up sleeves wearing glasses joined them. He was a human that was working on the corner earlier and hearing the conversation came over to join in. This is the apex of magic and human ingenuity, the Asian male continued, a wide grin in his face. Using the modern science of robotics and mixing in Mistress Irishwell's control of earth magic, we are able to create pseudo-robots with basic AI without the need of complex machinery and wires. The Asian male appeared to be raving at this point as he lectured into the explanation, which most of them couldn't understand, what he was explaining, making Christian whisper to Irishwell, Is he all right? Irishwell sighed, He's fine, just, um, overpassionate. He's Tai Jun Puck, the system support for the mining here, and the captain called him an Otaku, or something like that. He did, however, taught me and showed some images and videos of how persons anatomy like the joints of arms and legs. This allowed me to visualize a better way the golems move, thus increasing their agility and speed of movement. Irishwal explained over the words of Tai Jun Puck which everyone was ignoring now. I am creating the skeleton of the golem first, and then I will add the rest to the armor for the body, which Tai Jun is helping me with the computer. Damn, this is going to be fun. We got freaking armor support. End of chapter. Chapter 105, Dungeon Level 1. As dawn slowly breaks, members of the dungeon exploration team gathered once more at the meeting room on the top floor of the administration building. Everyone involved had already been waiting anxiously. Most of all, James and Christine didn't get much sleep the night before. James sat next to Christine, yawning as he woke up earlier than her and had to sit in earlier meeting. He sighed and glanced at Christine, who ignored him. It was nice last night, he whispered in her ear making her blush slightly and giving him a hard pinch to his arm. Rubbing his arm in amusement, he laid back on his chair and smiled, refocusing on the topic at hand. Which top was detailing out final instructions to both teams? Finally, the final briefing was over and the whole room filed out and gathered in front of the admin building, where a couple of the large dark green tents were set up. All right, enter the tents one by one. Inside, you'll draw equipment and supplies for the mission. Pike pointed to the two tents behind him. Ensure that you have enough food and water for two days, spare ammunition for your weapons and rock climbing gear. Christine looked nervous as she entered the first tent and saw two tables inside. A couple of marines dressed in battle dress uniforms gestured her over and handed her an armored tentacle harness and a helmet to her size, instructing her how to wear it properly. Next, she was given a single action revolver, which she had qualified in the gun range many weeks ago which the captain mandated all personnel go through. When she left both tents, she carried only the revolver with spare ammunition, a katana-like blade in a scabbard, and strapped to her left leg, as she was supposed to be rear support. She didn't carry any other weapons except for the tablet and the M314 motion and heartbeat tracker. 
She was also given a day pack which carried multi-tool, spare batteries, 10 chemical lights and a first aid kit, two days worth of rations and water, and also a 15 meters of dynamic rope strapping to the side of it. We do not expect you guys to take more than five hours exploring the first level, Pike said as everyone gathered around him again. Each of you will be carrying a tracking device with extra food and water, just in case. This tracking device, he held up an oblong-shaped matte black object, may or may not work inside, to be truthful, as we do not know how it may interfere with the signals it gives off. So all the best. Irishwal handed over a flat piece of rock to each of Pike and James, with arcane runes carved into it and said, This will give you control over number one. She points to the 2.5 meter tall golems at the rear. James whistled as everyone looked over to the sport golems and admirably said, Damn, those look so dope. The new golems looked more futuristic than Herodia works. With clean lines and sloped armor, it also had a lower center of gravity making it look hunched, with both of its arms nearly touching the floor, which also enables it to walk on all fours, allowing it to climb steps if needed. The drawings of the arcane symbols were hidden under a layer of rock armor, protecting it from damage and numerical marking to indicate which unit it was, marked over the chest chestplate and left pauldron. The large mechanical repeating crossbow, almost half the size of Virishwal, was mounted on the left arm of the golem's similar to the ancient Chinese repeating crossbows. It can fire a bolt in every three seconds from a box magazine containing 20 half-meter long wood and steel bolts attached to the top of the crossbow by pumping a cork lever forward and backwards. As I walked up towards the entrance of the mines, the workers and miners lined up at the sides to cheer them on. Damn, I always wanted to grow up to be an adventurer when I was a child, Hitsu commented as they waved the cheery people. I used to line up along the streets watching and cheering the adventurer parties when they returned from the dungeons. Why didn't you then? Pike asked as they were curious about the life of the Gold Rose. Well, for one, the toll to enter the dungeon was too expensive. Hitsu shrugged as he recalled from his childhood. Also, my parents never wanted me to expose myself to unknown dangers. A lot of adventures didn't return, and they wanted me to be a clerk. Well, look at you now, his buddy Lokes said a budding adventurer. They followed brightly lit interior of the mines and passed the widened entrance of the Dragon Knight Cave, where several scaffolding and lamps had been set up, the lights turning the Dragon Knight Cave to some kind of psychedelic display. Further down the cave, a marine section could be seen manning the checkpoint a short distance away from the dungeon door, with dozens of techs and workers doing some chores here and there. Pike turned and looked at Specialist Private Altiard. You okay, son? Yes, Top, Altiad said with a slight ashen face and replied back. Can't wait to kill something, Top. Sound out if you're not well, Pike said. We don't need heroes. Yes, Top, Altiad gritted his teeth as he approached the gaping hole in the cliffs. His brain had suffered a shock from peering into the abyss and looking at the dark door sent shivers down his spine. Sweat slowly formed over his forehead as he felt someone patting him on his shoulder. He saw his buddy Young smiling at him. You're right, bro. He asked, concern showing on his face. As he observed the dilation of Altiad's eye pupils, You can still rest, you know. Rick rest, Altiad cursed. Mind over matter. Didn't top teach us that crap during Hell's Week? Yeah, but you didn't get mind fricked. Young argued. Seriously, bro, if you can't do it, no one will think less of you. 
I have to do it, Altier responded firmly, or I will forever be scared of the dark. Good to hear it, bro. Itsu looped around an arm of Altier's shoulder. We got your back. Yeah, Loke added at the side. Claymore won forever. Hoorah! The group of brothers chorused and Altier grinned, his fear of the dark diminishing as he stood with his brothers in arms. Magister Thorn stood before the dungeon door and placed a hand on it, giving it a gentle push, which, to the surprise of the rest, it swung inwards with barely a creak. Come on now, Thorn looked surprised faces of everyone and grinned. You think it'll be hard to enter? He gave a bark of laughter and walked into the darkness, invoking a light spell as he entered. All right, everyone, put on your war face, Pike shrugged as he waved everyone in. Itsu, I want your war face, not your freck face. Top, this is my war face, Itsu quickly wiped the smile off of his face and he readied his weapon and entered behind Loke. Damn, does Top have some magical eyesight or something? Eyes front, less talk, Pike barked as he entered next, following the team. The dungeon corridor stretched further than the light beams could reach, while Thorn's light spell floated above his head, illuminating the arched corridor. Christine immediately went and poked around the walls as she noted the architecture of the tunnel. The walls seemed to be constructed out of layers and layers of bricks, with some carvings in the upper arches of the tunnel. Interesting, she muttered to herself. As she continued down the corridor, Christine waved a sensor wand around, which Irishwell looked at interest at what she was doing, and the two girls started chatting away in the middle. The heavy footsteps of the two supporting golems followed docedly behind, walking on all fours they navigated through the spacious corridor. Anything on the sensors? Pike asked as they walked for almost five minutes. Nothing top, Young said as he waved his motion tracker left and right in front of him. The brick corridor looks clean and not even dusty at all. Christine used her helmet cam to record all the drawings in the walls and after a while. The drawings and carvings repeat themselves after a while. Looks like some kind of hieroglyphics. Magister Thorn, you know anything about them? Thorn shook his head as he looked at the hieroglyphics. No, my apologies. I do not have a knowledge of ancient words or symbols. He suddenly pointed at the front and said, I see another door. Wait, Young hissed. I got some movement behind the door. The signal is too weak to detect much. I think something is blocking the scanning signals, but so far comms with ops is still okay. Pike looked at Hitsu and Loken jerked his head once. The two of them nodded and ran forward, each taking up a position next to the door while Altiad, Young, and Pike formed up. Ready. Lights off. Go, Pike ordered while James's team stayed back, holding the rear. Loke swung the door open and pushed right, while Hitsu went left with the rest followed, each covering a sector. They entered the dimly lit room with five openings, and what appeared to be ants the size of dogs, attacking several large amber-colored slimes. Okay, frick magic. Pike cursed as he mentally rolled his eyes at the giant ants. What do we do now? Hitsu whispered. The room was surprisingly lit with several large clumps of glowing moss that gave off enough ambient light to see. The ants so far have not noticed them, as they were busy harvesting the slimes by cutting them up with their mandibles and secreting some sort of substance that they used to collect the slime fluids. Thor struck his head into the room and exclaimed, Oh my, on those spider imps and honey slimes! Danger level, Pike asked as he kept his eyes on the ants who busied themselves with the slimes. 
Mm, I would say the spider ants are level 3 creature, Thorne replied. Those slimes are level 0. They are not hostile and are great for making desserts, but be aware of the ants. If they swarm you, they're quite troublesome. Pike did a quick calculation. Empire knights are around level 4 to 5, while wind wolves are classified as the elves are to be level 5 or 6. What are the spider ant characteristics? They have strength of about 10 men, very fast movement, ability to climb walls, carapace harder than iron, lives in a hive, communicates telepathically with the queen in control of all. Thorne ticked off his fingers as he recounted the traits of the spider ant. Weak to fire, and their joints are their weak points and strong against earth magic and pierce attacks. Top, Hitsu whispered. I think they've noticed us. The ants squeaked and chirped as they turned to face new threat. While several ants hurriedly bundled up the collected honey from these slimes and ran off to one of the tunnels. They don't look so happy to see us, Roke added. His M2 mage but a buttstock snuggled tightly against his shoulder. As he looked down his sights at the angry ants. Well, if they are riled up, they turn hostile or whatever that disturbed them, Thorne added helpfully from the rear. Yep, they look angry. Pike closed his eyes and took a deep, calming breath. Prick this. Kill them all. Just as the ants rushed to them, waving their mandibles threateningly, and Pike opened fire with his silenced M2. The 6.5mm solid lead bullets punched a hole into the head of the lead ant, the hard exoskeleton cracking and hemophilic fluid exploding out of the exit hole, and the dead ant curled up its body systems, no longer pumped hemolymph to its body parts. Frick magic. End of chapter. Chapter 106. Waste not, want not. Pops of suppressing gunfire echoed down the corridor and James looked up with narrowed eyes. Top, what's the situation? He radioed using the communicator. Fricking bugs, Top replied. We got some giant ants here. Need support? Over. James asked as he held his weapon ready, watching the doorway, where the sounds of gunfire drifted out. Negative, Top replied over the radio. It's over. I'm in. It's cleared. James stood up from his crouching position and waved for everyone to follow. Top says it's cleared. Let's see what's inside, he told his team. As they entered the room, Christine and Irishwell both coughed, the thick cloud of gun smoke lingering inside the room. Thorne raised his hand to form a simple spell, and a small breeze dispersed the smoke in the room. Over twenty-plus bodies of ants the size of large dogs laid curled up in death. The remaining slimes appeared to have been frightened off and had disappeared somewhere. The ground was wet with leaking himalymph from the dead ants, and Christine went up next to the dead ant to snap a photo with the camera. Thorn bent over the dead ant and poked around. The manistones are normally under the forehead or the thyroid part of the ants. He deftly used a dagger and sawed a hard exoskeleton out of the ant's head, before digging into it and pulling out a slimy yellowish manistone out of it. Yeah. Hithorn tossed a finger-sized stone over to Pike, who rubbed the slime off the stone before examining it in the light of the moss. Nice, he turned to the rest and said. Well, what are you waiting for? Grab the stones from the bodies. Pike turned to Thorn next. What else is usable from these creatures? Well, the silk from their rear abdomen could all be harvested to make cloth, Thorn added. Also, the carapace could be treated. Works better than leather and steel armor. Some of the artisans use the eyes of the ants to make jewelry, while the eye cases can be used for clear bowls. Thorne listed out a few of the usages he knew of. 
The mandibles can be used to saw blades too. Damn, there's a lot of usage for them, Pike replied, watching the team cut up the ends for mana stones. Is it edible? Oh yes, Thor nodded. I've never tried it before, but I heard that people do eat them and apparently taste pretty good. All right, okay guys, stop what you're doing, Pike called out. The way you guys try to harvest the stones is making my eyes bleed. Mistress Irishable, can you command your golems to transport the bodies of the ends out to the main door? Give it to the people outside the dungeon and let them do the proper job of harvesting while we focus on exploring the area. Irishwell nodded and started to direct her golems to collect and transport the ants out. Bring along those bundles of silk and honey slimes. Waste not, want not, Pike added. The golems have a large wicker basket secured to its back, and one of the golems gently draped the dead ant into the basket of the other, and while they were all collected, they lumbered off back to the exit of the dungeon. While that was going on, Christine looked around the room, finding more drawings and carvings along the walls which she recorded down. She did a quick measure and found that the room was roughly 20 meters by 32 meters. So which tunnel do we go down first? James asked Pike, which prepared to move out. Pike pointed to the second tunnel from the right and stated, The ants use that tunnel. Most likely it leads to the hive. He walked up to the hive and took out a piece of chalk and drew a large ant-like symbol next to the opening with an arrow pointing to it. Let's split up here, Pike said. My team takes the rightmost tunnel while your team takes the leftmost. Mistress Irishwell, I would like your golems to hold this room when they return. Is that all right? Irishwell nodded. James, once the golems return, Pike said next, explore the leftmost tunnel. Clear? Pike started to mark the stone floor with his piece of chalk, indicating which direction and which tunnel they entered, including the time. All right, team one, let's go. The team one followed Pike into the rightmost tunnel, their lamps lighting up the way, while team two under James waited for the golems to return. As Pike's team entered the tunnel, which turned out bent here and there, they encountered more ants and honey slimes. After fighting their way through the ants, they found a fork in the tunnel and took the right turn, marking the walls with arrows and soon found a huge cavern full of sand. Look, is that a chest? Hitsu asked, his light beam shining on the distant object. Holy spirits, I've never expected to find a treasure here. He started to approach the chest. Halt, Pike yelled, stopping Hitsu's advanced. There might be a trap there. Pike kneeled down and grabbed a handful of sand, letting it run through his gloved fingers. It's just too quiet in here. The men on a lurk followed Pike's words and looked around cautiously, checking every nook and cranny of the cavern as they slowly approached the chest to the end, seemingly empty cave. Squad one, check it out. The rest wait here, Pike ordered. Young and Altiad nodded and advanced cautiously from both sides. They made their steps as light as possible as they approached the chest. Young looked at Altiad and nodded, using his M2 barrel to flip the squarish wooden chest open. With both of them leapt back, on guard, in case some of the traps, but nothing happened. Hitsu sighed happily and straightened up, when suddenly the ground under them exploded upwards, sending him flying head over heels over a couple meters away. Spitting sand out of his mouth, Hitsu scrambled for his weapon, just as a massive reddish shape appeared out of the sand, as the sand slowly washed off the dark red carapace of the giant scorpion. Thorn yelled, Sand Scorpion, watch out for the poisonous twin stingers. 
the massive twin-tailed scorpion towered over three meters, snapped its claws seemingly in anticipation of the meal that would be having. Its three pairs of eyes eyed Hitsu laying a few meters away from it with a hunger and scuttled on its many legs towards Hitsu, pincers snapping in an eager happiness. Oh, Fark! Hitsu cried out, rolling on the sand to dodge the snapping claws. Fark this! Take it out, Pike yelled, and fired the sides of the giant scorpion, causing it to flinch in pain. His 6.5mm rounds not penetrating the carapace. Frick! The rest fired almost at the same time, sending the giant scorpion scuttling away from the bruising pain of a bullet impacts. Other than the cracks on the carapace, the heavy-armored scorpion appeared to be fine and very angry that its prey got away from it, and the stinging pokes of the other prey's creatures. It reared its hind legs and jumped, scaring the crap out of Hitsu as it landed right next to him. Fark! Altiad dropped his M2 and reached for his back, pulling out his pump-action shotgun in one smooth motion, and fired an explosive round, hitting the rear of the scorpion tails, as it tried to stab Hitsu with its stingers. The force of the explosion sent the scorpion tumbling over the walls of the cabin and a loud explosion shocked Hitsu, sending him running away, holding his head and cursing. Are you trying to kill me or that thing? That must be a champion monster, Thorn yelled, as three magic circles formed around his raised staff. It is not dead yet. And he cast a lightning bolt directly into the dust cloud, the sharp crack of lightning echoing painfully down the tunnels. Suddenly, a huge sand wave appeared from the ground towards Hitsu. Loki yelled, Get out of the way! And Hitsu made another dive, just as the giant scorpion burst out of the sand, sending sand flying all over the cavern. God damn it! Hitsu coughed, just more sand rolled out of Kraut's position, firing his M2 at the giant scorpion. Eat, lad! Altiet, seeing these explosive rounds not doing much effect on the monster, started to pump the remaining shells out and reloaded with 12-gauge solid slugs. He raised his shotgun and rapid fire, sending 35 grams of impact discarded above lead slug flying at 400 meters per second directly into the side thorax of the giant scorpion. The force and impact of the Sabo slug punched through the hard carapace of the scorpion, sending pieces of scattered exoskeleton, shell, and lead flying away. And a spray of light blood echoed out. The giant scorpion hissed in pain and anger, spinning around on its many legs, searching for the source of its pain. Its many eyes locked onto Altiad, who pumped his shotgun, ejecting the spent shell and charged, its twin tails rearing back to strike down at the prey that dared to hurt it. It ignored the scorching heat from the bolt lightning, intent on hunting the prey that stood in front of it. Aim for its leg joints, Pike yelled at Young, Lok and Hitsu fired continuously at the fast-moving legs, and succeeded in blowing away a couple of its legs, causing the scorpion to crash down as it got unbalanced. Altiad aimed the shotgun directly at the gaping mouth of the scorpion and fired. The supposed slug drilling out of the mouth and the back of its main brain case, killing it instantly. It laid prone just meters away from Altiad, his surviving legs, pincers and stingers involuntarily twitching in its death throes. Freaking fantastic, people! Pike praised as he reloaded his M2. Damn, this one is one for the books. He sized up the still twitching scorpion. It must be some kind of guardian for the chest, Thorn said. Most likely there is more than one sand scorpion here, and this defeated the rest. Thus, it grew to the size and becoming the champion here. 
How large do they normally grow up to? Getsu asked as he tried to shake off the sand of his uniform and gear. I heard they normally appear down in the beaches along the east. Normally only four to five feet large, never as big as this one. Thorn poked it with his staff, making sure that it had stopped moving. Look at that. Everyone bent down to look at what Thorn pointed at. Wow, that's some huge mana stone. Young gasped as he shone his flashlight on the head-sized clear yellow stone under the chin of the scorpion. Ah, we're gonna need the golems to carry this baby out. Pike puffed. Oh, what's in the chest? Everyone turned their attention to the chest at the end of the cabin and found a cluster of crystal-like bottles with a thick reddish liquid and some with a dark blue liquid. A couple of age stained scrolls tied to the blue ribbons laid on the side of the chest. All that crap is just some drinks, Pike sighed, disappointment on his face. He was hoping for some magical artifact. Oh, those are healing and restoration potions, Thorn said as he picked up one of each colored potions, checking them over. It can bring someone back from the brink of dead with the red healing potion, while this blue potion restores magical powers. As for the scrolls, Thorn gently unrolled the scrolls and studied them under the light of the soldier's lamps. Looks like some spells. I need to study them more, but these are at least level 5 spells. Wow, it's a grin. That didn't turn out to be so bad after all. Even Pike nodded in agreement after hearing what the potions could do. All right, check your gear, Pike ordered. I'm going to go see if I can raise Team 2 over the comms. After a short while, Pike cursed. Damn, these tunnels can't get a signal through. All right, we're heading back to grab the golems and bring the trophy back. Want not, waste not. End of chapter. Chapter 107. Clear. Morocco capital, the Empire of Bluewood, Imperial Palace. The precious crystal goblet worth dozens of gold royals shattered into hundreds of crystal shards and dark red wine stained the dragonwood paneling on the study walls. The liquid dripped down onto one of the thick, rich carpets. Emperor Varrican stood over his dark wood desk, glaring at the kneeling messenger who brought news of Duke Sturm's army defeat at the hands of the rebels. The news took over three five-day weeks to arrive at the capital, despite the speed of courier dragons and relay stations. Varrican stared at the trembling soldier with a yellow stash tied diagonally across his chest from his shoulder, marking him as a member of the messenger corps inside. Go, waving a thankful messenger away. Kill him, Varrican said to no one in particular as the messenger left his study. The thick, dark wood doors closed by his personal eunuch. He sighed again and flopped down onto his chair, looking at the map on his table. And bring me Sturm, alive, preferably. His eunuch brought over another crystal goblet and a bottle of garnet wine. The colorful garnets clinking against each other as the eunuch filled the crystal goblet halfway. The wine glittered in a rich blood-red shine of a goblet. The muted scream drifted into the study despite the closed, thick wooden doors that Varrican nodded, sipping the wine and rolling a piece of garnet around in his mouth before spitting it out. Ah, thirty-year-old garnet wine from the Lalps. His mood restored and he kept his thin air again. And the witch, the mysterious voice appeared out of nowhere. Dead, it appears, with the guards. Varrican raised an eyebrows. Two imperial lifeguards? Yes, your majesty. The voice appeared out of thin air. 
All eyewitness accounts are once the lifeguards were killed, she rebelled and appeared to have been killed as a result of the media that followed. Pity, Varakins took another sip of his wine. Oh well, we still have our brothers to play with. He looked at the map again. This bunch of rebels at the south is wasting a lot of my resources. I have to finish my fight with the Twin Alliance, or this rebel group will forever be a thorn. They must not grow strong. Send the rock down to take over the Sturm's forces, Varrigan said, after debating the silence for a while. Tell him to use all resources at his disposal to crush the rebels before they grow stronger. I don't really care how he does it, just as long as the rebels are destroyed. Yes, your majesty. Seacliff Mines, Dungeon Level 1 Both teams were gathered in the first room of the dungeon, having a quick cold meal and some field maintenance of their weapons. More than three hours had passed since they had entered the dungeon and successfully mapped out and explored almost the whole level. Master Sergeant Pike finished his report back with base and hopped onto the rock outcrop and clapped his hands, gathering everyone's attention. All right, we're almost done with this level, just a little more to go. He pointed to the tunnel where an image of an ant was drawn. Each tunnel opening had images of monsters drawn next to them from the stick drawings to the twin-tailed scorpion to slimes and ants. That tunnel most likely has the way down to the next level. Apparently, the first level of the dungeon consists mainly of honey slime, spider ants, and sand scorpions. The two golems were busily wandering in and out of the tunnels as number one transported the dead carcasses of the ants and the scorpions out of the tunnels, while number two ferried them out to the exit. All the tunnels so far had led to a cabin or a room while some passengers looped back around on each other or rendered in dead ends. So far, the four tunnels that they explored each had a room or a cavern, and unfortunately for T1, only they encountered a champion monster. The rest were just a group of mobs with the harmless slimes. But other than the chest from Team 1, they found no other chests in the other rooms, leading them to speculate that only rooms with chests will most likely have strong monsters inside. Everyone ready? Pike asked the team members, policing their trash. All right, let's go. Team 1 will be the vanguard, match the thorn and ladies in the middle. Team 2 will be the rear guard. Once everyone was in formation, Pike nodded and Loke set off, leading the party down the forward scout. Christine waved a sensor around, sending a sonar beeps every ten seconds, and the mapping program in a tablet automatically updating a 3D rendering of the dungeon. The lights lit up the tunnels as a swarm of angry chirping ants charged out into the hail of thunder and fire. Seacliff Mining Station Operation Center a bank of monitors temporarily set up on one side of the room displayed the choppy and lagging video stream from the dungeon exploration teams. Captain Blake stood watching with the irritatingly lagging and jerky images, wishing that they had real-time telemetry instead of the jerky images that they were giving him a headache. Ford, Blake spoke over the real-time conferencing call to Commander Ford back on the bridge of the UNS Singapore. We'll need people with experience in dissecting monsters. Get all the butchers, tanners, anyone who knows how to process monster parts here as soon as possible. Got it, sir. I'll check with the princess about who to call. Ford nodded. Looks like a great haul, we got her. Oh, yeah, they did great, Blake replied, trying not to grimace as he watched the lagging video captured from the helmet cams. I seriously do not know how the monsters will respawn in a few days inside that dungeon. I hope... 
that Thornless said was true. It's magic, sir, Ford grinned. Well, if it works, we can send regular hunting trips into the dungeon to harvest what we need. Yeah, but this amount of materials from the monsters will not support a large population, Blake said. At most, the small village or a town. But any but helps in the long run, especially the mana stones from the monsters, if we want to maintain our own firearm tech. Ford nodded. I will get the, with the princess regarding getting those with knowledge of working with monster parts now. She gave a salute and signed off from the conference call. Blake went back to watching the lagging video and gave up after a while and went to look at the hall coming out of the dungeon instead. Seacliff Mines, Dungeon Level 1 Watch your head! Pike yelled as he stood at the rear of Squad 1 and 2 from his team engaging the ants. They are crawling from the seedings. Ugh! Eat lead! Hitsu yelled, firing his M2 up at the ceiling, sending rock chips and ant parts flying down, before his weapon locked back. I'm out! Switch! Pike yelled, and Tyria from Team 2 stepped into Hitsu's spot, while Hitsu backed off to reload. Tyria calmly aimed the M2 and fired single shots, hitting the different target. The ants seemingly knew that they were coming had gathered in force, throwing themselves into the fray giving their lives for more of their brethren to close in on the intruders. Yet, it proved futile as the M2 mage-spitters made short work of the suicidal ants. Both Thorn and Irishwell helped by launching magical attacks over the heads of the crouching shooters. Thorn sent bolts of chain lightning, which jumped from one ant to another, electrifying them, while Irishwell turned the terrain into soft mud, slowing down the ants greatly and launching rock spikes which stunned the ants the spikes not strong enough to penetrate the ant's carapace. Just now, the heavy thump of footfall appeared behind the party, and number one golem appeared. Erishwal quickly ordered it to attack the ants, and Pike ordered the men to give way for the golem to advance. Runes on number one lit up following Erishwal's order. The inside core of the golem, a magical artificial lifeform powered by Dragonite similar to the human's artificial intelligence, followed the many instructions drawn within its body, connected by the magical connections engraved in its body. Moved forward, protect people, and kill enemy, its simple brain told it. Magical muscles of rock and stone twisted and stretched as number one strolled forward, passed by the soldiers on the side as it raised its arms with a repeating crossbow. Its left arm pumped and fired handle up and down, throwing heavy bolts down range each bolt impeding an ant or smashing them into pieces. The ants were too tightly clustered together in the tunnel that rather inaccurate repeating crossbow was still able to kill one or more ants with each bolt. When its repeating crossbow ran out of bolts, it swung its arms mightily, wallowing directly into the massive ants, crunching or breaking the ants with each swing of its arms. The ants tried to bite and bind it with the spider silk, only to succeed in chipping some of the rock armor, and the silk could not bind the tightly enough, allowing number one to break free easily. The rest supported number one's media attacks by firing at the sides of the golem, preventing the ants from surrounding number one. Finally, the pressure dropped and the ants retreated, leaving behind hundreds of dead, twitching ants. Check your ammo, Pike ordered as everyone took a breather from the fight, which lasted only 20 minutes, but felt like hours. Anyone need resupply or injured? Good work, number one, Girishwell praised number one, patting it on its arm, which number one appeared to respond to, giving it a slight nod. 
We need to give it some meaty weapons or a minigun, James said from the side. A chainsword would be awesome. Hell, a bloody flamer too. He excitedly said looking up at number one. He will wreak havoc in such close quarters. Number one seemed to give a look at James before turning back to Irishwell, who commanded it to transport the ants' carcasses back. Thank you for your help. The golem started to pile the shattered bodies' parts of the ants into the basket it was carrying. Already, Pike asked as everyone refilled their empty magazines and ensured that they had sufficient ammunition. Let's go. The queen ant should be up ahead. The passageway widened as they followed the echoing sounds of made by frantic ants as they neared their hive. From the width of the four men could walk side by side to twice the width as they came upon the huge opening, dimly lit by the glow moss. Shadows of ants scurrying around the opening could be seen cast by the light beams of the exploration teams. Angry hisses and chittering came from the ants as they formed a wall, rocking the way into the large room. Hit them with explosive rounds, Pike ordered, which Altier and Hitsu followed the order, switching to their shotguns and firing an explosive shot at each directly at the cluster of ants. The force of the explosion and the shrapnel tore out the ants, sending bits of ant parts flying all over the area. Clear! Go, go, go! Pike ordered next, and they stormed into the opening in a double file formation, and spreading out to cover all points when they cleared the opening. The girls and Magister Thorne hung back and waited for them to give the all-clear, before entering cautiously into the room. Christine stared up at the mammoth-sized queen spider-ant, which bloated his body appeared to be perched on some sort of mound made out of soil and rocked like a throne, its fat overpositor dangling over the mound, supported by strands of silk attached to the ceiling of the room. Hundreds and clutches of milky white eggs clustered or covered all over the walls and ground, while dozens of wriggling maggots-like creatures could be seen spawning all over the area. Okay, I should have protested more in coming here. End of chapter. Chapter 108. Boss Fight. The blade of wind smashed against the rock barrier raised by Irishwell, where most of the exploration team had taken cover behind sending rock fragments and dust raining down on other pinned elves and humans. Pike leaned out and popped a few shots at the ants that tried to flank them and dodged back to cover as another wind blade smashed into the barrier. Thorn! Pike yelled. Any ideas of how to defeat it? The rest of the team had scattered when the spider and queen suddenly threw blades of wind at them, with Loke taking up a glancing blow to his chest where the armor plate buckled under the force of the wind blades. I'm not sure. She appears to have a wooden barrier up. Thorn's voice came over the entrance of the room. It should be a wind element creature. Use fire-based attacks. The queen kept at its throne of dirt, sweeping its scythe-like arms, throwing wind blades at the intruders. Irishmal managed to throw up a rock barrier, providing cover for the deadly blades of wind, while Hitsu dragged Loke back under cover of the barrier, and Young quickly tended to his injuries. The wind blade had sliced past the thick anti-spalling cover into the graphene armor plating and the inner trauma plating, before weakening, but still had enough force to slice open Loke's upper chest and upper shoulder to the bone. The shockwave followed the wind blade slammed through the force and dented the armor plates and broken his collarbone while ripping open the surgical-like cut. Blood gushed out of this young and Christine ripped off his armored vest. Minor heel! Young cast a heating spell, 
placing his hands over the gaping wound. The wound closed slightly, but the degree of damage was too much, and the blood continued to flow freely. Christine slapped a couple of self-heating bandages over the wounds, and the medical nanite started to work on the wound, repairing much of the damaged tissue as possible. He's going into shock. Christine dug out a trank shot from her own medical supplies from her own first aid kit and jabbed the shot into the meaty portion of Loke's thigh, while Young cast another healing spell to try and stabilize Loke. Christine next grabbed Young's medical bag, pulling out an automated external defibrillator device. Placing the electrode pads on Loke's chest, startlingly white-looking, against the amount of blood stained on his body. Come on! James, take your team and suppress the queen from the left of my command. Ike yelled over the sound of gunfire and monster cries. The rest of you guys take care of the minions. Now! Pike yelled, and James's team, sheltering behind the rock formation, swung out from cover and fired at the queen causing it to scream in anger as pains of dozens of 6.5mm rounds hammered into her exoskeleton. A few stray rounds punctured the queen's soft ovipositor, causing jets of slimy fluid to burst out. The queen reared its head and screamed a high-pitched frequency of screams momentarily stunning the explorers. The cluster of egg cases started to wiggle. What the frick? Pike covered his ears, wincing in pain. Luckily, everyone was wearing earplugs for protection against gunfire, and the high pitch screen did not badly damage their ears. Now what? Pike cursed as he noticed the cluster of eggs around them started shaking and wiggling. The queen jerked itself and shook her rear end, ripping the gutted ovipositor off and started to climb down her throne. Her heavily depleted workers and soldier ants gathered around her and prepared to charge the humans and elves again. Hit him with explosive shots, James cried out as he recovered from the sonic attack. He raised his M2 and fired at the queen, the lead rounds leaving marks on her thorax carapace. Explosives erupted all around the gathered ants, and yet the ants continued to rush forward. Chain lightning. A bolt of lightning streaked up from the opening of the cavern, jumped from one ant to another, roasting them perfectly as Thorn cast his spells from the outside of the cavern. I am not strong enough with fire-based spells. The charge of lightning left onto the queen, which she dismissively gave a sweep over the forelimbs, shattering the lightning charge into a shower of sparks. The queen raised her forelimbs and swept down, sending two wind blades directly at Thorn, who gaped at the disappearing and explosions of rock and dust and fragments, the sides of the opening shattering as the wind blades smashed with a huge force, leaving two cuts in the wall. Thorn! Pike roared. God damn it. As usual, there's always some frick up in the intel. He dropped his M2 in the sling and pulled out his M7A1 from his back and ducked out of the badly degraded rock barrier. Leaning forward into the recoil of his fired his M7A1 at the Queen. The 6.5mm armor-piercing tungsten steel core rounds punched through the wind barrier around the Queen, the magical barrier slowing the power of the rounds down by half but still the armored-piercing tips of the bullet slammed into the hard exoskeleton of the queen's chest, dumping all of its remaining kinetic energy into the internal organs of the queen, shocking the heart and sending the queen spasming and vomiting up bile in a massive jaws. Damn, I should have shot that witch up with the M7 earlier, James grumbled as he pulled himself up, switching over to his M7A1 as well, and joining Pike in taking down the queen. 
The queen stumbled backwards as the hard-hitting advanced weapons broke both the forelimbs, which she used to block the barrage of bullets, and spasmed as a couple of the three round bursts flew to a segmented neck part, tearing her head off of a small pulsing fountain of ichor shot out of the queen's severed neck. Her remaining legs kicked out and spasmed as her heart continued to pump hemolymph, still not knowing what the brain had died. The cheer went out of the team as the queen stopped her movements, laying on her side with her body curled up like a ball next to a mound of rock and dirt. Um, are they supposed to do that? Tyria asked, his weapon pointing at the moving eggs. Are they hatching? Uh-oh. James gave a curse as the egg casings nearly dry broke, and the slimy whitish ant crawled out. Ugh. James used his machete and hacked the newly hatched ant in half. Damn, it's not over yet, guys and girls. Incoming, Terria yelled, as more and more of the eggs hatched new ants out. Destroy the eggs, don't let them hatch out. Irishwell grabbed a handful of rock fragments from the floor and whispered a spell. Rock spike. Throwing the stones and fragments through the magic circle in front of her, turned the stones into daggers' sharp spikes. Her spikes smashed into clusters of eggs nearby, killing the ants before they hatched. Christine and Young, seeing Loke stabilized from his wounds, helped engage the surviving ants and the newly hatchlings. As Christine picking up Loke's dropped M2 and her hands sticky with Loke's blood, firing at the monsters with precision. Altiert, Hitsu, and Don fired the shotguns loaded with explosive shots, shredding huge clusters of eggs and hatchlings in the process. Come on, have some! Lightning Vault streaked out again from near the rear, rupturing more egg clusters, and Thorn appeared from the doorway, his robes and hair caked with dust and a trail of blood over his forehead. I'm getting too old for this, he grumbled as another magic circle appeared before him. Chain Lightning! Clean up of the cavern took them nearly half an hour. A platoon of marines had joined in the cleanup when Blake at the operations center deemed them to be in big trouble and dispatched the marines in. Talk about being late to the rescue. James shook his head, watching the marine medics strap Loke onto the stretcher and transporting him out gently. Damn, I'm tired. He stood next to Christine and gave her a hug. How are you doing? Any injuries? Stop that. Christine pushed James away. People are watching. Erishwell looked scandalized at the open display of affection and blust, looking away hurriedly as Christine waved her wink. Yes, I'm okay. All this blood is from Loke. She raised her hands. The blood covered up to her upper arms and a vest of a uniform. Glad you're okay. James ignored her protests and hugged her again, kissing her on the forehead. Who cares if everyone watches? He grinned back at the marine's cat calling on the side. Pike walked up to Thorn, who sat on the platform of rock, a marine medic cleaning up his wound on his head. How is he? Pike asked the elf medic. Just some minor concussion and torn skin, nothing serious, just a head wound that tends to bleed a lot, Top. The medic snapped a piece of band-aid over the wound and nodded to Thorn. Sir, hold on. Thorn sighed. I'm too old for this kind of action. He gave a grin, but it was fun while it lasted. Damn it, old man, Pike said. Please take care of yourself. The princess and the captain will have my hide if anything happens to you. <laughs> I'm all right, Thorn grinned, dusting his robes as he stood up. Well, 
Good job on killing the queen. He watched the newly arrived marines clearing the dead ants and pointed the dirt mound. The entrance down to the next level will be there. Is it going to be this hard each time? Pike asked, watching Bloke and the stretcher disappearing into the tunnel out of the room. Hmm. My theory is that due to many, many years, there have not been any creatures that have killed the queen. Then thus it grew larger and stronger over time, thought Guest, and we are the first to enter this dungeon for maybe hundreds of years. Wait, so if and when the dungeon respawns, the queen will be easier to kill next time? Pike asked with a raised eyebrow. So meaning all the boss monsters and champions from this level onwards are way harder than usual. Thought nodded. If my theory is correct, then yes. The monsters will have many, many years to grow in strength, and we will be the first to encounter them. But there should be a good catch to this. The stronger the monster, the better the materials they provide. Thorn gestured to the queen. I suspected this should be a very high-quality mana stone in the body. Great. Just great. Pike shook his head and sighed. Damn, I hope this would be a walk in the park with our modernized weapons. I can't imagine how adventurers fought with cold steel against these monsters and lived to tell the tales. That's why mages are highly respected and in demand. Thorn gave a wink to Pike. Magic makes it easier to clear a dungeon. Pike shook his head again and waved for Thorn to take a rest, while he went to gather up some volunteers from the marines. All right, you pukes, I need volunteers. He randomly pointed at the loitering group of marines. Yes, you, you, and you. Yes, you. There is no one behind you. Carry your entrenching tools and start digging up that mound. Pike led the group of volunteers over to the Queen's dirt throne. The elves worked rapidly clearing the mound and soon a large pair of doors appeared amongst the dirt. The elves worked faster, excitedly fighting the door. Hey guys, James called and everyone involved in the exploration over. We found these buried or dropped here in the, the room. He placed on the floor of James's feet were a large pile of treasure, from pieces of gold and silver nuggets to gemstones of all kind. We also found a lot of mana stones. He shone a lamp to another large pile on the side. In fact, there are a few dozen piles of mana stones all over the place. I'm guessing these came from either the monsters, the ants hunted, or they themselves that they died naturally over time. Thorn went over the pile of mana stones and picked one up. Some sized greenish crystal glittered prettily against the lights cast by the lamps. He dropped the stone back on the pile and rubbing his hands and grinned at the ragged-looking bunch. Now isn't this the best part of exploring a dungeon? Loot! End of chapter. Chapter 109. Rest and Recuperation The mining station was still lit up despite the late hour. Drifts of music and laughter could be heard from far away, and the green-skinned scout sniffed the air, his mouth watering. He caught the smell of meat roasting on a brightly lit town that appeared suddenly over the winter. His band head would be pleased with the news as he returned with it, and he slipped off into the darkness with his tummy rumbling. The celebration reached the zenith as past midnight. The miners, the workers, and the off-duty marines drank and feasted on the locally fermented alcohol and fresh ant meat. Captain Blake sat next to Princess Shireen, listening to Thorne's version of the experiences in the dungeon. He dropped the finished piece of the ant's leg on the side, which looked like a snow crab leg and somewhat tasted like snow crab. 
Shireen happily dug into the fleshy wheat and dropped the shell next to the small pile of the empty leg shells. The ant legs were boiled in seawater and served with soy sauce, courtesy of Chief Keto's cooking. This is delicious! She wiped her mouth with a napkin and settled back down in the seat happily. Yes, Blake agreed and asked, didn't your people have ant meat before? Shireen shook her head. No, this kind of monster cuisine is kind of hard to find amongst the nobles of royalty. She grinned happily and gave a small burp. This is my first time trying. It's very tasty. <laughs> Blake laughed as his satisfaction expression. Well, this is also the first time I had ant meat too, but it turns out to be pretty good. He remembered Chief Keto during the tasting and him insisting ant meat was tasty as crab. While the volunteers looked on skeptically, before some brave soul tasted it and agreed with Chief Keto. Well, it's good that it'll bring some food variety to the city. Shireen nodded. City Hall had just finished moving a large stack of magic ice boxes from the Iron Castle to our nearer to our city, so it is useful. Food can be preserved for longer and for almost no wastage. Blake took a while to understand that she meant the magic ice box. You mean the refrigeration unit? Yes, yes, Shireen nodded, her hair braided up and down with a large blue ribbon. I have arranged for the oldies with the knowledge of skills in skinning and butchery to help dismantle the monsters. With a new refrigeration set up next to the market, we can process the materials easier and with less wastage. But there are more and more reports of goblin sightings now, Shireen added. The farmers, the loggers, the foragers and hunters are getting worried. Equip the farmers and workers in the forest with crossbows and bows for now. Blake turned to look at Shireen. We only have so much mage locks and they are going to the next batch of marines. I'll push Major Frank to come out training program for the militia force. Shireen nodded. Her good mood vanished as she thought of the coming troubles and problems that faced her and her people. Cheer up, Blake patted her hand. Just won a victory against the Empire recently and also cleared the dungeon's first level. And the number of resources and materials we've gotten will help us in the coming days. Look at them, Blake pointed down to the courtyard where the tables and chairs were arranged in a large bonfire burning at the center and people dancing to the music around it. Yesterday, they fought with their lives on the line. Today, they celebrate that they are alive. They play hard, they enjoy as much as they can, and there is no telling what will happen tomorrow. So why worry so much now? Blake advised Shireen, seeing her downcast face. We make plans to ensure nothing goes wrong, but life doesn't always follow our plans. That's why we should enjoy the moments we can. Shireen smiled. Thank you. Your people had really done a lot for us, and yet we still are demanding more from you. Well, to be frank, we also need your people. We can't be strong just on our own. Blake patted her hand again. Don't worry, we will do something about keeping your people in a mind safe. Blake offered her another plate of ant legs. More? Well, we got four days off of R&R, &R, so what are your plans? James asked as he held Christine, and both of them swayed at the music. The flickering flames cast a warm orange glow on Christine's face as they danced slowly in the music. I don't know. Do you want to come back with me to the beach resort? James asked. You know, for some sun tanning and water sports. There's a beach resort here? Christine asked, her eyes lit up by the flames. Are you putting my leg, Sergeant? 
Oh no, James grinned. It's for the armed services only, and with plans to open up to the public later on. How come there's a resort here? Christine rested her head against James's chest. Well, Captain Blake thought it would be good for the crew and armed forces to take some time off from the hustle and bustle. James hugged her. It's actually more like a chalet. I need to bring our own food and stuff. What do you say? I'm not sure. Christine pushed away from James's embrace. Are we together, or is this just a fling to you? Hey, look here, James said gently to Christine, holding her chin. I'm serious about us being together. The captain and Exo had already stated that the rules of fraternization amongst the crew and military no longer applies here. And seriously, I don't think that we'll have a chance to return to Earth in our lifetime. Maybe our kids' generation, but definitely not ours, James stated honestly. Besides, this is actually quite a beautiful world. No overpopulation, politics, pollution, all that. The only monsters trying to eat you and the empire that keeps trying to kill you. Wait a moment. When did I say that we will have kids? Christine glared at James' smiling face. I have not agreed to anything yet. Come on, James laughed, lifting Christine up by giving her a spin, making her laugh too. Let's go to the resort. There will be a barbecue. All right. Only if there's ant meat, Christine laughed. East of the uncharted forest, the great ocean plains. War leader Urka and the band of the hand emerged out from the forest foliage and stood before the grassland that stretched as far as the eye could see. He took a deep breath, taking a fresh scent of the grass and not the coy rotting scent of the forest's undergrowth. The sun shone down, warming him up, and his kneeling down to give a simple prayer to the spirits. We are home. His defeated warriors cheered up visibly as they saw the endless land of the great ocean plains. They had marched hard for four five-day weeks through the coasted uncharted forest, fending off monsters and goblin attacks before reaching the edge of the forest. Come, we'll be home soon, Oka yelled as his warriors who gave a cheer. Another two five days and we'll reach the band. Followed that, Oka climbed up on his mount, a large grizzled wind wolf, and urged it forward, and his warriors followed along. Oka's weary warriors managed to make it within sight of the band after traveling for nine days. The journey was considerably peaceful, only having two encounters with monsters, which they managed to defeat at the cost of a few unfortunate warriors. Finally, they reached the wooden palisade of the band and stood, waiting for the sentries to open the gates. The patrols and the lookouts had already spotted them when they were two days out from the camp, and the wolf riders rode up and down, dispatching messages and supplies. As they entered the gates, the whole Orkin band had turned out to welcome them back, some of the cries of joy, while others were silent tears of words of condolence. The great chief, dressed in the pure silver wind wolf pelt, was wearing a headdress made out of the skull of the red griffin and decorated with sesame red griffin feathers, stood before the great hall and watched passively as Urka went down on one knee before him. Great chief, we have returned. The wrinkled face of the great chief remained solemn as he stared at Urka. The noise from the gathered organs slowly quietened down as they turned to watch what was going on with Urka and the great chief. Finally, after a period of silence, the great chief spoke. You return with only half of the warriors you began with, and where are the elders and the shamans? Urka looked down at the ground, unable to answer. Your actions has caused the clan greatly. 
the great chief continued, you are stripped as your position as a war leader and shall be confined to the pits to reflect upon your actions. The great chief waved for the guards to take Okra away. Go, reflect on what you've done. I have important guests to entertain. Okra stood up speechless and allowed the guards to strip him of his armor and weapons away, leaving him bare-chested, and the guards led him away past the muttering and gossiping crowd, past the dwellings and the pit several meters deep. Just as he was shoved down into the pit unceremoniously, he saw something strange. Two strange-looking gray metal objects were parked side by side behind the great hall, and that was the last thing that Urka saw as he dropped into the pit. The Band of the Hand, Great Hall. Ah, uh, sorry for the uh, delay, the great chief said with a halting common that gave a yellow-toothed smile at the guests sitting at the table on the floor. Come, drink, feast. He gestured to the food and the drinks on the table. Thank you for your hospitality, former Marine Army Sergeant Ramon smiled back, giving the toast to the Orkin. The food and drink are pretty good. The rest of the human party joined the toast. Ah, you're our guests, the chief explained hurriedly, only the best for the guests. He had seen what strange and powerful magic these strangers humans have. So what can we do for you? Robin asked, knowing well what the old rat wanted as he leaned back in his lazy and soft wolf hide covered floor. You know we Orkin have no metal skills, the chief said. We like to have you as your our metal workers. Workers, Ramon raised his lazy eyebrow. I'm sorry, but we're not anyone's workers here. The rest snickered as they continued to drink the wine. Ah, not workers, the chief frowned. Then what do you want? Simple, Ramon said. I want slaves, young and healthy, and warriors and land. Slaves, no problem, but warriors, the chief frowned. Why warriors and land? I want to have my own army and workers, Ramon explained. You provide me with slaves and warriors. In exchange, you get metal weapons and armor. And if you are a really good boy, I gift you with some mage locks, Ramon, and the rest laughed as he finished the demands. The chief looked at them in thought, wondering if this meant the thundersticks. Slaves, easy. Land, just pick where you want. But warriors, they have to be willing to follow you. Ramon shrugged. As long as you provide me with what we need, you will get what you want. If not, we take our services somewhere else. Ramon stood up and jerked his head to the rest. Let's go, boys. Wait, wait. The chief raised up his hands, gesturing for them to stop. Warriors, yes, I know who to give you. Well, if that's the case, Ramon gave a triumphant grin, rubbing his hands together. Let's talk business then. End of chapter. Chapter 110. Operation Dagger. The cold wind howled loudly as the massive waves flapped up and down. Specialist Sergeant Tyria felt slightly sick, the up-and-down motion of the dragon they were strapped to making him slightly green. The cold air helped to suppress the urge to vomit. He and Claymore One were all dressed in simple homespun clothes, thick jackets and goggles to protect against the high-altitude flight. Blue Thunder stretched his wings and leisurely flapped his wings a couple times and rode the air currents as they glided in the night, navigating from the dim light to the twin crescent moons. They had traveled for two days, staying close to the mountain ridge, only flying during the night and resting in the day. 
Blue Thunder felt free for the first time. He did not have a crew or a master to order him to do anything, only laws and rules to follow. The human Blake had said that if he agreed to work for them, he would be paid and given proper housing and care. But should he negate one agreement, all that was offered would be removed. For the first time, Blue Thunder had something he owned. For the first pay he got, he bought himself a whole roasted peco peco and thoroughly enjoyed it. He heard that if he saved up enough credit chips, he could get someone to build a house for him. Back at the Empire, it was unheard of that a dragon could own property, not to mention that he really wanted a TV set up so that he could watch his movies and dramas, as of course music. Blue Thunder had signed up with the so-called Air Force, serving as the heavy lifter that he was expected to work alone at times, using his own initiative. Yet another concept unheard of of the Empire. He did miss his captain and crew greatly, after all, they had grown up together. But life and death is a way of life for the Empire, and he was happy that he wasn't put down, like so many of the other dragons he saw at the coven that had lost their captains. He started humming a tune of the song Thunder by Imagine Dragons, which to him the naming was quite appropriate. Hey Blue, could you stop singing? Terrier poked Blue with a side as the dragon started while Chorus, making his whole rumbling and tremble, making Terrier's motion sickness worse. <laughs> Sorry, Blue rumbled. Look, I can see the town of Ledge. The dark shapes of the trees looming behind them in the dark distance, pinpricks of spots and lights and fires and lamps from the town could be seen in the dimly lit terrain. I'm going to find a spot and sit down around the mountain edge. The men of Claymore One all looked up alert and started scanning the horizon for the town. Everyone was rigged onto the flanks of the dorsal top of the dragon with carabiners. A simple light-white scaffolding-like structure was rigged onto Blue's Thunder's back, with benches and even hammocks for the men to walk or even sit and sleep. The design allowed the men to walk up and down and even cross over to the other side of the dragon's flank. The strips of wood doubled up as benches or gangways for the men, and the whole design does not interfere with the dragon's movements or even when landing. They only have to ensure that the hammocks and the loosened items are secured properly in the bins connected to the frame. Ah, I can see a cave opening. Ruth under smacked his lips as a warning to the men. Stand by for landing. Everyone started checking their gear and carabiners were probably secured. One ready. Two ready, three ready, four ready, I ready, six ready, all clear, good to go. Dropping in three, two, one. Blue Thunder dipped his left wing and dropped into the slow spiral, bleeding off the airspeed as he circled around and gouged the distance to the cave location. Just before slamming into the side of the mountainside, he flipped his wings rapidly, hovering just above the opening of the large enough for him to enter, and used his powerful legs and front limbs to grip the rock wall, and, like a Terran lizard, climbed into the cave while folding his wings at sides. Ugh, I think next time we should take the Valkyrie instead, Young moaned as he unhooked his carabiner and dropped down the side of Blue Thunder, who looked mighty smug. Well, that was a good landing, Blue Thunder huffed, looking pleased. As Commander Tommy said, any landing that you can walk away from is a good one, he quoted and suddenly tensed up. Something is in here with us. Positions, people, 
Tyria immediately ordered, drawing out a Glock from his holster and spreading the side of the cave. No lights till my order. The main weapons were still secured to the weapons bins at the back of Blue Thunder. Hmm, smells like a griffin. Blue Thunder growled and his hackles rose, ears back, tail down and the position lowered. A snarl, reptile Blue Thunder was in the depths of the cave. Ready, lights on my mark. Tyria ordered as everyone was taking up positions on one side of Blue Thunder, under what cover they could find in the large cave tunnel. Three, two, one. Lights. At Tyria's command, everyone looked away, only keeping one eye open, even Blue Thunder. They had rehearsed these tactics a few times before. The under rail mounted 200 lumens white light from the seven pairs of glocks lit up the interior of the cave as bright as day. A cry of pain and surprise screamed out as the creature with the head of an eagle and the body of a lion, with features, wings, and blinded by the sudden glare of lights. Blue Thunder took the opportunity that the griffin was blinded and pounced upon it, its jaws going for the neck, while its forelimbs landed on the monster, its claws digging in deep, causing blood to flow. With a snarl, he jerked the bone-snapping crack. Blue Thunder snapped its neck, and the griffin then dropped limped carcass to the cave floor. Dinner is served. Blue Thunder licked his chops and claws. He did a little dance over the carcass of the griffin and sent the rock dust fragments raining down on the cave ceiling. Stop! Terrier yelled. You big oaf, you want to bring the cave down on us? Sorry. Blue Thunder stopped his dance and settled down carefully. I was just excited. Yes, yes, we know. Altiad shook his head as he reached up to the side of Blue Thunder and unloaded the supplies. Come on, stay still. I need to grab the lamps, and if you want me to cook it for you, you better behave. Blue Thunder hurriedly laid flat on the ground and allowed the men of Claymore One to unload the supplies stored in his back. Luckily, you didn't destroy any of the supplies when you fought that griffin, Young said as he hoisted down some bedrolls. It was a youngling, Blue Thunder boasted. I can kill hundreds of them easy. Yeah, sure. Tyria placed the lamps out at several locations, lighting up the whole cave. Found anything else behind? He called out to Hitsu, Doth, and Tabal, who went to check the rear of the cave for any more surprises. Oh yes? Hitsu yelled back after a while. We found some treasure. Everyone stopped what they were doing and went to see the treasure was found. Even Blue Thunder was curious. Look, that's the Griffin's hoard. A huge bird-like nest was woven out of the tree branches sat at the rear of the cave. The glitters of gold could be seen laced amongst the wooden branches. Tyria used his light and pistol as he dug out a piece of gold nugget from the rest and whistled. God damn, pure gold! Yep, nothing but gold here, Tavol called out from one nest he was standing on. Seems like the griffins love gold. Blue Thunder snorted. Amateurs, proper hoard should not only consist of gold, but you need jewels, coins, and all kinds of treasure. Blue, you don't even have a hoard, Young pointed out, while the rest laughed. Mark my words, I will have one, some day. Blue Thunder tilted his head high and gave a harumph. Sure you will, Terrier smiled, tossing a gold nugget at Blue Thunder, who deftly snatched it with his large clawed hands. Keep it up killing the griffins, and I heard that Major Frank is going to offer a quarter share of any treasure found during military operations, so part of this is ours. Holy crap, Doth cried out. Seriously? Yep, when we retire, we'll be set up for life.
Kiria grinned. So make sure you pick up every piece of gold that we have run recorded down. We're going to be rich. Luthander grinned and started to get a little jig again, causing everyone to curse and swear at him. After the excitement had died down, the men cut up the griffin and roasted the choice portions, which Blue Thunder ate most of, and everyone settled down to sleep the sun came up. They woke up again, close to late afternoon, and started their preparations to infiltrate the Empire. All right, Blue, you drop us near the edge of the forest and beat it back to the base, okay? Blue Thunder nodded. This town we're going to is called Fellage. It's part of our kingdom of Goldrose, and since it has fallen to the kingdom, the Empire has taken over it. We have no idea how many Empire troops will be stationed here, but it should be a lot, as Duke Sturm should be using it as a springboard to attack the pass in a few weeks back. Tyria looked around the gathering men and dragon. We will split up into groups of two and disperse into the population, Tyria pointed to Hitsu and said. You will be with me since Loke is not with us on this mission, Hitsu nodded. High Command has given us one month's time to gather as much information as possible, Tyria continued. Stockpiles, military strength, routes, latest maps, marching orders, even the feelings of the local population about the Empire. I want all information recorded down in code, and don't get caught. Tyria glared at everyone. We gather back at the edge of the foul ridge again after one month. If you do not make a rendezvous, I will mean that you have been either captured or killed. If the chances of being captured are very high, make sure all information and weapons are disposed of properly. The Empire might not understand the human's technology, but just to be safe, Tyria stated. There will also be a very low chance of rescue should you be captured, so make sure that you don't get caught. All right, gear up. It's about time to move out. Tyria clapped his hands and signaled the end of the meeting and headed to the cave entrance. He stood at the edge of the opening and looked down at the sheer drop of the cliff and pulled down a walkie-talkie. Claymore actual to Thunderchief, do you copy over? He sent out a message. They had early mounted transmitting relay devices on the cliff walls. They had done so along the way, installing another relay device in the previous resting site, allowing radio communications over long distances. Thunderchief. What is your situation? Report over. Claymore 1 has arrived within sight of Fulledge. We'll begin Operation Dagger 1 in an hour time. Over. Thunder Chief, copy that. Stay safe and God bless. Claymore Actual, Roger and Tango Yankee out. The men had changed, wearing simple homespun clothes and trousers with similar leather sandals. Each carried an unadorned short sword and a dagger, with a concealed holster for their silenced glocks. A sling leather case holds either the shotgun or the M2 mage spitter inside, while a pouch carried some explosives and grenades. A small slung bag carried other necessities for each man and perfectly forged travelling documents taken from some of the thousands of prisoners were carried in the simple scroll case. Ruth Under silently glided to a stop at the edge of the farmer's field, and Claymore One hopped off from the dragon. Blue Thunder gave a nod and quickly took off flapping his wings mighty and disappearing into the night skies. All right, people, eyes front, we're in enemy territory now. End of chapter. Chapter 111. Talent. Shadowy figures suddenly moved and crept along the irrigation trench next to the field of native grains. The man, tall stalks of yellow-green crops swayed gently in the early morning wind as six figures appeared next to the row of wooden fences. 
Sun's up in an hour, we're going to wait for the gates to open. Then we're going into the city in groups, Teria said in team. Keep hidden till then. Soon the sky lightened up, the clouds turning red and then a thin fog slowly dispersing and people started arriving in small groups in the town gates. The three stories tall wall festooned with arrow slits surrounded the whole town of roughly 20,000 inhabitants together with a moat. Let's go, Tyria waved everyone up and walked out from the grain fields towards the small queue forming at the gates. Tyria's boots squatched as the morning dew and water from staying behind the irrigation trench had seeped into his boots. He ignored the cold and wet feeding, joining behind a couple of chatting gatherers with a large pile of firewood tied to their backs. Kitsu formed up beside him, his hand gripping on the pommel of his sword. Relax, Tyria whispered, glancing behind them to see the rest joining the queue behind them. Tyria stepped up right behind the two wood gatherers and gave a polite cough, making the two gatherers turn and look at him with curiosity. Greetings, good sirs, Tyria gave a disarming grin, and the two old men dressed in coarse wool country clothes. I've been on the road for some time, so I was wondering if you could share any recent news of the town. Both the gatherers looked at each other and hesitated, but their faces quickly turned to smiles as Tyria flipped a silver coin to them. Well, kind sir, what do you want to know? What is the latest news of the happenings around here on the town? Tyria asked. I've been away for weeks from my friend here, so we are lacking news of the area. Oh well, the Duke lost some kind of major battle due to south of the rebels. One of the older gather was whispered, but don't go talk about it in town. If the guards hear you, they will take you away, or worse. He made a throat-slitting motion. Both Tyria and Hitsin nodded. What other news? Well, spring is here, so the goblins are out in force now, the older gatherer said. Other beasts are also roaming around too. He scratched his head and as he thought. Well, rumor has it that the duke has gone missing. I see... Anything else? Teria asked. Well, the armory has left, thank the heavens, the other gatherer spoke up. It is more peaceful now that they have left. He took closely at the two, frowning and whispered, Are you two deserters from the army? Heavens, no, Hitsu cried out. What makes you think so? Well, you have the feeling of a warrior. The gatherer rubbed his head in embarrassment, while the guards here are checking the arresting the any army deserters. I see, Teria grinned, placing his hand firmly on Hitz's shoulder. We used to be part of the Goldrose army, but now, he just gave a shrug and continued, we are working as adventurers and problem solvers. Yeah, I see, my greatest apologies. The two gatherers quickly gave a bow to them, which they hurriedly stopped the two. It's all right, it's all in the past, Teria said. You don't have to bow to us anymore. We just want to thank you for your brave efforts against the Empire. The old man whispered, looking over his shoulder to the walls. Be careful of the guards. They might mistake you all for deserters. It'll be fine. We have traveling papers. Tyrion grinned, get a touch of sincerity by the two gatherers. We'll be fine. Can you recommend an inn for us to stay at? Mm, you can try the prancing pony down the left of the main street after you pass the market stalls. You can't miss it. It's a sign of a prancing pony. The old man rubbed his chin. Tell the owner, old Raggins recommended you. He'll give you a fair price. Thank you, good sirs. Tyrius dipped his head and thanks and pointed in front. Look, the gate is opening. 
A thick wooden drawbridge was slowly being lowered by two sets of iron chains set on each end of the drawbridge. It came to a stop with a crash, and the gates of foreledge swung open, and the metal portcullis was lifted up slowly, and several guards were seen behind it. The queuing crowd started to stir. Some getting up from the where they sat waiting, others started shouldering their bundles of goods while the cart drivers woke their dragons up from their nap. A voice shouted from across the bridge, informing the queues that they can advance. The drawbridge barely creaked as Tyria and his men shuffled down the line towards the gate. The guards checked the identity papers of each person entering the town, and soon the two gatherers' turn were over, and Tyria and Hitsu stood before the guards, who waved their papers for impatiently. Tyria and Hitsu handed over the scrolls cases containing their travel paces and discreetly observed the gatehouse, finding dozens of murder holes on the ceiling and a stout-looking metal reinforced door at the side, most likely leading to the control room with the windlass which lowered and raised the drawbridge. Purpose, the guard of the red clothes slashed across his half-plates, asked snobbishly as he glanced at the travelling papers. Work, Tyria said truthfully. We are adventurers and problem solvers. We gave a slight bow to the guard. No, the guard raised his eyebrows. You look more like soldiers than adventurers. Kind sir, we just want to find some work to support our beddies. Tyria gave his best smile and clasped the guard on the hand, handing him a small pouch of coins. Hmm. The guard turned to the side and deftly checked the contents of the pouch, with a few gold nuggets could be seen, and seemingly satisfied, nodded and returned the papers into the scroll cases, handing it over to Tyria and grinned. Welcome to Foreledge. Word of warning, don't get into any trouble, or we will throw you to the dungeons. Next. The guard turned his attention to the next in line, waving for them to come forward. Tyria looked at Hitsu, who gave a shrug, and they entered the town. UNS Singapore Conference Room Attention on deck! Marine bellowed from the open form of the Captain Blake entered the conference where all the heads of departments rose and saluted. At ease, people! Blake waved everyone to their seats and nodded to his second-in-command, Commander Ford. Let's start. Ford continued standing and patiently waited for everyone to settle down in their seats. All right, a quick report on our current situation. He activated the main display screen and a series of graphs and charts appeared. As of the start of the year, first quarter, almost nine months we arrived here, we have finally some nice green lines to show and our chance. Ford grinned. Despite that, we are still in the red on several items on the list. Food, population, education, transportation, production, mining and military sector have shown positive growth over the last quarter while ammunition, medicine, technology, and magic research have all declined and stagnated. Ford tapped the screen and highlighted each point. We need to focus more on those lacking, especially ammunition and technology. Blake spoke next. So, I'm going to divide everyone up into different sectors to work on. There will be five key sectors. Military, production, transportation, magic science, and technology, and finally civil. Blake listed out the five points. Major Frank will behead the military sector, which will cover all forms of external security and threats. Chief Gale will be in charge of production, which will cover all forms of factories, mining and construction. Quartermaster Chen will be in charge of transportation sector, which will deal with our transportation network and including supply goods and resources to each area. 
for magic, science, and technology. I want Magister Thorne, Dr. Sharon, and Chief Matt to handle it all, including medicine and research. Finally, for civil, Princess Shireen will have the lead and the ops officer lets in support. Education, housing, agriculture, fishery, healthcare, public works, and the police will fall under civil. Blake finished outlining his plan. I want all of you to list out and recruit who you think is the talent that your sectors would be running. Questions? How about the budget? Quartermaster asked. We need something to pay the workers in salary. Accounts departments will be working with everyone on this, Ford explained. They will work out a budget to be assigned to each sector and also other special requests. How about the manpower? Who can we draw from? Chief Gale asked. We can headhunt anyone we like. If you find a talent from the locals, recruit as per the normal procedures. If they are part of the crew of Marines, apply directly for HR for approval. Blake clarified. Any other questions? No? Okay, next. Lieutenant Tavor stood up. Mr. Gentler will be for your ears only, rated top secret. He warned everyone in the meeting. Failure to comply and leaking the top secret information will be met with severe consequences. Everyone, including the elves present, nodded seriously, all their faces grim. Now, two days ago, we launched Operation Dagger, the top secret information gathering mission within enemy territory, which, in this case, is the Empire. The 101st Claymore One is inserted successfully into the border town of Forledge, formerly part of the Kingdom of Goldrose. Tavor informed those that were in the dark. The timeline for Operation Dagger will be one month for Claymore 1 to infiltrate and blend into the population within the Empire, subjected to be extended if required. Operation Dagger primary objectives involve information gathering, scouting of enemy dispositions, supply depots and stockpiles, weapon manufactories, troop strength, morale and marching routes. Tavor highlighted the main objectives. Secondary mission is to discover the families of those who decided to join us with the possibility of recruitment for local supporters. So basically, it's a spying mission, Dr. Sharon pointed out. Yes, in a simple sense, Tavor nodded. We also want to know if it is feasible to project our forces into occupying Forledge. You mean an invasion into the Empire? Shireen's delicate eyebrows rose all the way up. You want to take Forledge? Hmm, Blake interjected. Well, if it's possible to take and hold it, yes. I would rather the enemy fight on their own land than on ours. This way, we can limit the destruction on our own infrastructure, and also we'll have more room to fall back and maneuver should we need to. He admitted frankly. Well, what about the civilians? Shireen half rose to her seat, her fists clenched tightly as she glared angrily at Blake. Their homes and their livelihood. Blake stared back at Shireen calmly. It's war, but of course we would try and prevent as many civilian casualties as the evacuating them from safely beforehand. But what if they don't want to leave? Shireen shot back. Are you just going to let them die? Ford gave a cough and interrupted. Please, princess, we will do everything to ensure the safety of non-combatants, and besides, it is one of those options that we're looking at. We're all still looking at the feasibility of the operation. If the information given to us states that the town is not suitable for a long-term defensive battle, then of course, we will not commit to it. Shireen gave a jerk and sat down, muttering, I'm sorry for the unsightly outburst. Please continue. Lieutenant Tavon nodded and continued the brief, as if there were no interruptions. 
by identifying key depots, stockpiles, roads and bridges, and staging areas for the enemy forces, we can predict when they will make a move against us again. Once identified, Valkyries can commence long-range bombardment to those key locations, stopping the enemy before they can even think of coming within a thousand kilometers of us. End of chapter. Chapter 112. Guns, mushrooms, and explosions. Oh my. Master Sergeant Pike cursed as he dumped the glossy magazine that he was reading on his desk. God damn it. He took a deep breath and calmed himself down before picking up the gun catalog magazine back up and flipping through the pages. Top, you okay? Mills leaned back in his chair, tilting his head back and looking into Pike's office. Peachy as hell. Pike growled back and Mills quietly returned to his original position. Damn, that Indian frecker. He compared the technical drawings of the M2 Magebitter to his own unfinished design and flipped through the gun catalogue. He worked as an armourer many years ago when he was still a newbie third sergeant and his knowledge of creating firearms from scratch was amateurish at bat, despite his hobbies of antique late 20th century firearms. He knows how a fine-tuner rifle, modest shotgun, or even scratch build simply a hobby bolt-action and pistols, but designing and making military-grade heavy machine guns was totally out of his depth. On his desk were several technical drawings and designs, from the mortars to cannons to engines. Should I go for the hand-crank design or the recoil assist system? Pike muttered to himself, Damn, those eggheads better research out how to make smokeless powder. The bloody black powder is just too dirty for recoil-assisted guns. The M2 Mage Bitter, I will require cleaning and maintenance after roughly firing 600 rounds, or the weapon will jam. Other fouling will choke up then the wind ruins, preventing them from activating. The M1 Mage Lock was slightly better, able to fire close to a thousand rounds before needing to be properly cleaned. In fact, more than half of the time the Marines spent during the defense of pass was just to clean their weapons. Now he needed to come up with a machine gun design for using black powder cartridges and another design for using smokeless powder. He mentally cursed again, damning Ramon's soul to the deepest hell for deleting all the weapons data in the armory and sighed, giving back to his work in making a machine gun. UNS Singapore Biohazard and Containment Laboratory Spaceman Senior Apple was whistling to the music when playing in the background and dressed in a yellow biohazard protection suit. Her work involved testing and analyzing all unknown organic material if it was capable of consumption or a chemical makeup. Samples were constantly passed to her from the surveying teams and just recently a new batch of samples arrived and they were directly from exploring the dungeon. Apple got tasked to check the meat for the giant ants if they were safe to be consumed, and it turned out to be packed full of proteins and minerals. She even managed to try and get the cafeteria the next day and the kitchen staff label it in the menu as ant meat pasta. When she tried it, she found that the ant meat tasted like crab meat, and the pasta was actually made out of potato flour. Stir-fried and chopped tomatoes and herbs, it tasted better than the usual slime noodles. She took a sample case labeled with hash UIF-112 on the top of the container, UIF for unidentified flora, and removed the vacuum ceiling. A large football-sized greenish-brown mushroom with white spots and a crown sat in the storage case. Hmm, what do we have here? 
She hummed along to the music playing in the background and used a digital camera and snapped a few photos and then gently scraped off some of the slivers of mushroom with the scraper, placing them onto a petri dish and inserting the dish into an analyzer. Next, she used a scalpel to cut out a small portion of the mushroom and placed it on another petri dish and placed it under the imaging device. She turned on the device in the microscope view and the mushroom popped up in the display. She then cut more pieces of the shroom and then ran a tox screen followed by a nutrient test. Just as she was about to run the next series of tests, the analyzer beeped urgently, with red warning lights flashing. She quickly dropped what she was doing at the moment and checked the analyzer reports. Her eyes grew wider and wider as she read the incredible results. Oh my god! She quickly picked up all the pieces of mushroom she cut and gently placed them back into the container and resealed it. She hit the intercom, linking the medical lab down to the hall, and said, I got a code black here, requesting immediate removal of code black item to a safe room now. She grabbed a shock of blast-resistant case of the room emergency stalls and packed the storage case of UIF-112 carefully into the foam-lined box and placed it into the two-way bin, letting it decontaminate inside the bin before the medical and science team members came. What is it? Dr. Sharon asked using the intercom from the outside of the biohazard and containment lab, as she and her colleagues waited for the decontamination countdown timer to finish. The chemical analyzer picked up large traces of nitroglycerin inside the sample. Avil spoke through the intercom. The computer immediately drops the high explosive alert, and following protocol, I stopped all work on it and resealed it back and encased it in the shock and blast-resistant container. Nitroglycerin... Dr. Sharon asked in surprised voice. Are you sure? Apple punched a few keys on the computer and brought up the display. She connected the camera to the enlarged image of the mushroom, following by pulling the analyzer report, putting it side by side with the image. 42% nitroglycerin, 33% crude fiber and ash, 9% liquids, 5% iron, 4% phosphorus, 3% potassium, 1% sulfates, and the rest will require more in-depth testing. Dr. Sharon read the report. Oh my, where are these from? The dungeon. They sent us a sample a few days back, Alex replied. The system is saying nitroglycerin is highly unstable, so that's why I'm calling a code black now. Got it, Dr. Sharon nodded and turned around and ordered the people. Okay, transport it carefully. It is highly explosive. Put it in a secured cooler. All right, we'll be handling this carefully, Dr. Sharon said next. Apple, I want you to continue to analyze the nitroshoom, but use small samples to be safe. Nitroshoom, Apple repeated back. I guess that's an appropriate name. Hmm, I'm going to report this higher up, Dr. Sharon grinned. I think the Marines and Captain will be very happy to hear the news. Outskirts of Base Colony Chemical Research Center at roughly the same time. Just several kilometers away, a secured location away from the city, a research center for the sole purpose of researching smokeless powder was constructed. It was purposely built far away from the city center to prevent accidents from happening should the lab explode due to the nature of the research that they were working on. A loud explosion ripped through the lab, sending a few researchers tumbling back in shock. Shards of glass and plastics flew everywhere, some causing cuts in the researchers despite the protective coats due to the force of the explosion. Spaceman Luther turned to the chemist researcher and screamed in shock and pain. Half of his left hand was blown off by the explosion. 
blood pooling under his sand as he kneeled on the lab floor, crying. His colleagues rushed in to aid him, carrying a first-aid kit, wrapping a bandage over his torn, lump left hand. Are you all right, Luther? Luther laughed as he cried at the same time, cradling his hand and said, I did it! I made gun cotton! Before, his eyes rolled up and went into shock. Frick, get him to the hospital quick! He has gone into shock! The colleagues jabbed him with a trank shot and carried him out to the lab and towards the motor pool. UNS Singapore, Captain's Office. Captain! Commander Ford knocked on the door and opened when entered without waiting for a reply. We got some very good news and, uh, bad, I guess. What's the bad news? Blake stopped his work and leaned back in his chair looking at Ford. Well, I won't really say it's bad. Just one of our amateur chemists got his hand blown off and we have a live explosive on board in the ship and our labs. Ford said, I'm not sure of the details. Dr. Sharon said it's one of the samples brought in from the cave as highly explosives. Blake raised an eyebrow. Okay, nothing happened to both labs. For the chemist lab, just some broke equipment, and the two others are with minor injuries, Broad reported, and Dr. Sharon isolated the explosive sample and secured the location for testing explosives. Blake nodded. And the good news? Well, the chemist who got his hand blown off found out how to make gun cotton, Ford grinned. That was what his colleague said he said before he fainted. Is that how he got his hand blown off? Blake asked, and seeing Ford nod. Okay, I want the lab to have the strictest procedure in handling dangerous materials and explosives. Get Pike to knock some heads. We are lucky no one is dead or blowing up the city. Ford nodded again. Got it in one more thing. The explosive sample down at the labs is actually some kind of shroom that has high concentration of nitroglycerin. Wait, gun cotton and nitroglycerin are the key ingredients to making smokeless powder. Yes? Blake shot up from his seat, excited. Yes, sir, Ford grinned. Once we can properly extract the manufacture of both ingredients, it will be a matter of time before we successfully create smokeless powder formula. All right, ensure safety is the priority in all labs and research centers. Have Pike or the guys with explosive handling knowledge draw the importance of safety to those working in the labs and research centers. Blake ordered and grinned. Finally, things are looking a little bit better than before. Ford agreed. Yes, it seems that this month is the most peaceful month that we've had since landing here. Well, that won't last long, Blake sighed. Take a look. Intel just sent this over. He turned on the display for the Ford, showing a map of several red and yellow dots. There were also large numbers of green dots scattered all over. Red for monster attacks, while yellows are for sightings for monsters. The green dots represent confirmed sightings of goblin activity, Blake explained. Damn, that's a lot of goblin activity. Ford did a quick count of the green dots. No need to count. There are a total of 89 reports, and it's climbing daily, Blake said. Not only goblins, but we also have reports of giant snakes, salamanders, and land dragons variants, wind wolves, giant balls, and some other creature still not identified by the people working out in the forest and farms. In a way, we get plenty of meat and animal produce when the marines kill them, Blake said. But we only have so many troops to spread around, and the next batch of graduates are still two months out. Lucky, we managed to get a source of mana stones, even if it is a limited amount, Blake added. If not, it would be back to arrows and saws for the new recruits. Well, we also can't keep relying on marines to constantly farm the dungeon, Ford pointed out. 
we will probably need to form a full team of hunters and gatherers to work in the dungeons. Yeah, and I'm very interested in those potions that they found in the dungeon. Blake rubbed his chin. If we can mash produce them, our medical worries will lessen a lot, at the rate of injuries people are getting lately. That's all the excitement for today, Ford said. I'd better go look for Pike. Blake nodded and turned the report that Ford just sent him and grinned. That's from Sharon. Heh. Nitro shrooms. End of chapter. Chapter 113. Fall Edge. The creaking of the wooden floor woke Terrier up. As someone's heavy footsteps could be heard moving up the staircase, he dug under the virum feathered pillow and pulled out his silence clock. It flattened him against the wall next to the door and waited. Not long, someone knocked on his room door. It's me. Tyria lifted the wooden latch up from the door, swung open, and Hitsu entered and quickly closed the door behind him. Phew, it's hot outside. Hitsu removed his leather armor and sword belt, placing them on the room's table before pouring himself a drink. What did you find? Tyria peered out of the window and while placing his pistol on safe. The sky was a beautiful purplish red as evening slowly descended over the town. The whole town stinks, and I mean it literally. Hitsu finished up the cup of water. I bribed some of the town rats and cutthroats, but they tried to ambush me on my way back. You dealt with it, Tyria sat down on his bed. Yep, but we just lost some contacts from them. Hitsu fanned himself with his large brum hat. But I did pick up some chatter at the local adventurers' guild. Seems that the Empire is offering a reward to capture the ex-Jute of Fallafall. Oh, that is interesting. Duria got it up and picked up his outer garments and started to get dressed. Anything else? Well, there's more jobs on the board for medical herbs than usual, Hitsu recalled. Also, there are a few Empire contracts offering mercenary work for up to three months. What's the scope of the job? Duria finished dressing up, looking like some well-to-do merchant. Mostly convoy escorting work, but the jobs of the city of Worcester. Hitsu said, I checked with the girl at the counter, and she said that it'll take roughly three five days by foot and two five days by land dragon. Anyone willing to sign up earns a deposit of ten silvers and gets a gold crown at Worcester. Hitsu continued, What the cargo is, the girl doesn't have any idea, but she suspects it's probably military supplies. She said that the Imperials are building some kind of outpost south of here. Tyria nodded. Got it. Got some food and rest. I'm heading down to the gentleman's club to gather information. Got it, boss. It's a grin as he leaned back in this chair and stretched. Watch your back. The streets aren't safe, especially at night. Damn, you get to have all the fun. Rank has its privileges. Tyria gave a wink as he left the room making sure Hitsu latched and locked the door before heading down. He wore a finely tailored grey coat over a white spider silk shirt with high collars and were all the rage in imperial fashion with a pair of black breeches and a knee-length boots. In his left hand, he held a sword cane topped with a piece of blue manor stone and his glock was stored in a concealed shoulder holster while his top hat was in his right hand. He gave a greeting bow to the inn-motherly matron, who smiled back at him, and he left the inn. Stepping out into the stone-paved streets and the full edge, 
The street lamps using glow masks gave out enough light to walk in the streets during the night, but Tyria decided to call the carriage instead. As Wadhitsu was complained of earlier, the smell of the town was pretty bad. He gave a whistle to the coach parked at the side of the road and the driver quickly drove it over to him. He climbed up on an enclosed coach and the driver closed the door. To the clubs and royals, he instructed the driver, who nodded and climbed to the driver's seat and snapped the reins of the dragon pulling the coach. The dragon gave an annoyed snort and leaned forward, its two powerful hind legs pushing off the pavement, pulling the coach forward with a slight jerk. Damn, Terrier muttered. I must be getting soft. He adjusted himself as the coach shook and rattled through the journey, making him think of the city of humans. Clean, no smell, smooth roads and bright. He watched the passing scenery of Fallledge through the small open window. Fallledge might be called a town, but it grew almost twice the size since the war. Many adventurers came to Fallledge due to the bordering of the uncharted forest, and it was also a staging area for the Empire forces which they also brought along their families and slaves. It soon grew to a modest population of less than 10,000 to over 20,000. Soon, the coach pulled to a stop in front of the large row of stone and brick buildings, and Tyria paid the driver. He straightened his coat and carefully stepped over a pile of dragon poo, and walked up towards a three-story brick building fenced in with an ornate gate. Two footmen, dressed in a red uniform, stood before the gate and gave Tyria an eye over, before bowing and greeting him, opening the gate for him to enter. Tyria gave him a nod and strolled carefully into the walkway in the building. Clubs and Royals Gentlemen Club was written in bold on a bronze plaque that was attached to a pillar on the side of the main door. As he approached the door, the doorman greeted him politely and opened the door for him welcoming him to the club, and a warm glow greeted him as he entered the building, and the servant followed to take his coat for him, which he declined, and the servant directed him towards the main hall. The hallway was richly decorated with paintings of war, and several monster trophies lined one side of the hallway. He walked past the trophies and paintings with just a simple glance before entering the large hall. Inside the hall, dozens of reclined chairs were spaced out in groups of two or four. Small round tables sat next to the chairs. Puffs of smoke erupted from several occupied chairs as the people smoked pipes and drank liquor. He scanned around the room before his eyes landed on a group of chatting away. But he focused on the fat male in the group who was gorging away at the grilled worm leg. Hello, my friend! Tyria strode straight to the fatty, who paused at eating the leg, and this greasy mouth broke into a wide smile as he recognized who it was. Tyrius Lotus! The fat pig put down the leg and wiped his hands on mouth while exclaiming in surprise and happiness. I as I live and breathe, how are you and what brings you here? Etero Arthur, Tyria grinned, giving the big man a hug. I'm fine, it's been years since we last met. How are you doing? Oh, it's been a year, two months and uh, four days since we last met each other, Petro grinned. I'm doing quite well, as you can see. He gestured to his belly and laughed. As usual, Turia was amazed by the mind of his fat friend, who seemed to have a memory unmatched by any other. Yes, you are fatter than the last time I met you. 
Etra had a round, cheerful face and a double chin, beady eyes and a bald head. His tailored shirt was large enough to make a tent for two to sleep in. Etro laughed and slapped Tyria's back, pulling him in to join his friends. This is Tyria Lotus. He's a good friend of mine from many years. We used to work together in the army before it got disbanded. There are many partners in crime here, Etro winked and introduced the other three. The skinny one is Leo Yonder. Next to him is Quam Bishop, and the whack beside him is Sester Blackwind. The four of us form up the North Star Trading Company, a simple and modest trade company here, Etra proudly declared. Wait, how did you find me? Well, I was just in town and I was looking around and found out about you and the merchant district. Terrier explained he didn't really expect to find somebody he knew before, and Etro used to be his unit's quartermaster. Found out that you like to hang out here, so here I am. Etro gestured to Terrier to sit down, the new chair brought over by the servants. Drink? Food? I get mulled wine. Terrier told the servant to one side, who nodded and went to fetch the order. So how is business? Not bad, not bad, Etro said. What are you doing now? Oh, I'm working as an adventurer and a problem solver now, Tyria said. You got a job for me? Hmm. Etero glanced at his partners and looked back passively. Maybe, but let's not talk about work here. Come, drink up. Etero picked up a glass of wine as the servant returned with a glass of mulled wine for Tyria. The night was spent with Etro and Tyria reminiscing about the past, exchanging funny stories during the time of working together and before long. They bid farewell to each other. Come find me at the company tomorrow, Petro winked and gave his address to Tyria, who assured him that he would, and they left. Returning to the inn, Hitsu opened the door and let Tyria in. How was it? I'm meeting him tomorrow to talk business at his office, Tyria said as he stripped off his coat and boots. Damn, I'm tired. I'll take first watch, Hitsu said, while Tyria nodded and lay down on the bed as sleep. The next morning, both men had the inn deliver some water up with washing and refresh themselves before having breakfast downstairs at the dining room. After a simple breakfast of bread, soup, and sausages, they headed separately to their own missions. Hitsu headed for an adventurous guild, while Tyria headed towards the address given by his friend Etero. Tyria soon stood before a store with a large, bustling warehouse in the merchant district, where he went to the storefront and spoke to the clerk inside. Hi, I'm here to meet with Mr. Arthur. I have an appointment with him in this morning. Please wait a moment, uh, sir. The clerk looked at him as it sconce. Tyria, he replied and went to look around the goods offered by the store. Well, the clerk headed upstairs to inform someone. The double shelves were stacked with many different items, ranging from common household items like cutlery and plates and traveling supplies like crystal lamps and camping gear. There was even a section that offered to buy manor stones from monster materials. Sir Tyria, the clerk appeared at Tyria's elbow. The master will see you now. Master? Tyria gave a small smile as he followed the clerk upstairs into the door, where a large desk and a chair strong enough to support Etro's weight. The room was decorated with paintings of sailing ships and monsters, while the sofa and tea table occupied a place at the side. Good morning, Etro cheerfully greeted Tyria, and the clerk bowed respectfully and closed the door behind him, leaving Etro and Tyria alone. Take a seat. 
He waved Tyria to the sofa and joined him on the opposite side. T, thank you, Tyria said as he settled down on the sofa and accepted a cup from Betro. So what's your true purpose here? Betro asked while taking a sip from the hot tea. You didn't just coincidentally appear here, did you? Seriously, I didn't expect to find you here, Tyria gave a shrug. But since I found you, and I do need your help on something. Like, Betro asked, if it's within my means, I will help you. I need information, Tyria said, and it must be discreet. What kind? Petro asked again. I'm not an information broker. Well, I'm sure you'll pick up something when you do trading with other people, Tyria said. Or, you know someone who does. Well, that depends on the information you need. Petro sipped his tea. So, what is it? I want information on all the Empire movements around this area. The End of chapter Chapter 114 A Business Deal What? Yetro sputtered after the tea that he was drinking. Are you crazy? You want me to be a spy? The gold rose is gone, all the royal family is killed, even the last princess has gone into hiding. Yetro stopped his ranting and stared intently at Tyria. Wait, the rebels down at the south. Shh! Tyria placed a finger on his lips and smiled. I just only want information. I'm not a rebel or a loyalist here. Ah! Etro comically covered his mouth with both his fat hands and quickly sat down again, ignoring the tea stain on his velvet silk shirt. Sorry, I thought that you were part of the rebels. Well, it doesn't matter if I am or not, Tyria leaned forward. I just need information about the Imperials. But if we get caught, Etro whispered, it's not safe. I'm not telling you to specifically spy on them. Tyria changed his tactics. I just want to know what you heard when you were out and doing trading. Stuff like rumors and sightings, as long as it is related to Empire troops. I would like to know. But why? Etro countered, staring at Tyria intently. I doubt that you are doing this just for fun. All right, don't tell anyone else, Tyria whispered. I will have to kill you if I tell you. Edro's ruby face whitened when he heard that Atten backed up at his chair and he put as much distance against him kidding Aura Tyria was giving off. All right, I won't ask any more. Good, because seriously, I would hate to kill you. Tyria released the kidding Aura he gave off. Now I'm willing to pay in solid gold for any information regarding the movements of the Empire. He shook out a pouch full of gold royals onto the table courtesy of the former Duke Sturm's war chest, captured when his army retreated. I'll see what I can find out, Petro mopped up the sweating head with a silky hand. This is a dangerous game you're playing. As long as you keep it to yourself, Terrier promised, you will get to live long and enjoy life. Damn, what is the way to treat an old friend, Petro grumbled. All right, I'll do what I can, but no promises. When all of this is over, you owe me an explanation. You got it, old friend, Terrier grinned and finished his cup of tea. So, you got any work for a problem solver? What? You still got a cheek to ask for work after threatening my life? Etro's face turned red. Ugh, I wonder why I'm friends with you. <laughs> Relax. That was business and this is just me looking for work. Teria smiled. Besides, there are always risks in brokering information. Etro shook his head. All right, I do have a job here, just that my partners are divided on trusting you with it. But since you dropped a hot coal on my lap, I think it should do fine to handle it. 
Etro leaned forward and said in a low voice, We got a client who, let's say, isn't interested in bringing slaves out of the empire. Slaves? Teria raised an eyebrow. You dealing with slavers now? No, not slavers, Etro mumbled uncomfortably. Our client wants to save the slaves, he whispered. They want to bring the slaves out of the empire, but the empire does not allow slaves to be taken out of the territory, so we need to smuggle them out. That's interesting, Terrier rubbed his chin thoughtfully. What do you need? I'll need someone to escort them through the uncharted forest and out to the mountains at the sea. Etra picked up a map from one of the shelves in the room and carefully rolled it onto the tabletop. There will be a ship to pick them up. Are you sure your client isn't just taking the slaves here and sending them away from other places? Terrier asked. Yes, I am sure, Etro nodded. One of my partners, Blackwind, you saw him last night. He used to be a slave we freed, and now he is the one of my guides through the uncharted forest. Terrier gave a whistle and then leaned back in the sofa. How long does the journey take? It would take a month, Etro replied. One month through the uncharted forest and untamed lands and another month back. Tyria raised his eyebrows. Through goblin and orkin territory, and heavens knows what other monsters. How many guards and slaves? Tyria narrowed his eyes and asked harshly. Etro gave a weak smile, then muttering something which made Tyria ask again. How many guards? Um, roughly twenty, Etro muttered. About a hundred slaves. Twenty men escorting a hundred slaves, Tyria asked. You must be mad. We've done it before, Etro insisted. Well, there were some casualties. Of course there will be casualties, Terrius said. The fact is suicidal. But that's the only fastest and safest way, Etro stubbornly said. Look, help me escort the freed slaves out and I'll do all I can to provide information you need. Let me think about this first, Terrius said. Are you sure there is no other ways to do this? There's a hidden cove to the southeast of the coast, Etro explained. It's deep enough for the ship to dock and hide. We can't get southwards due to the war between the Empire and the rebels, and the only way to avoid Imperial patrols is to head southeast directly to the coast. Got it. I'll get back to you again. Tyria stood up. How long on your side to gather all the information I need? Give me a couple of days, Etro responded, also standing up. Well, I'll look forward to the good news. Tyria nodded and left Etro's office and soon stepped out of the early afternoon sun. He turned and looked up at the second floor, seeing Etro watching him from the window, and gave him away before leaving. Maybe we would change the freed slave's route. Tyria smiled to himself at the thought, but he needed to check with High Command first. Foul Edge Adventurer Guild Kitsu pushed open the doors into the high ceiling building and entered the buzz of noise and clamor. He pushed his way past the couple of leather-armored adventurers who were laughing over something and stood before a large notice board where dozens of parchment were pinned to the board, each listing a job or a request. A child came up to him. Sir, sir, do you need help on reading the jobs? I can read and write for you. If all for a silver. The boy, dressed in a simple homespun, stood at his elbow, putting at his knee for attention. Tell you what, Itsu grinned. How about telling me about the latest news and what's going on in this town? Latest news? The boy looked at him and smiled back. You found the right person. I know all about what's happening in the town. I'll give you a silver for every five news items I find worthwhile, Itsu offered. But if you try and give me fake news, the deal is off. One silver for two news, the boy bargained. 
Hits grinned. One silver for four. Three, the boy counted, offered. Deal, Hitsu ruffled the kid's hair, making him grumble. So what's your name? Bill, but everyone calls me Biddy, Biddy smiled. So what do you want to know? Well, I'm interested in knowing what's going on in the Empire now, Hitsu said, bringing the kid into a quiet corner out of the hustle and bustle of the guild. Stuff like major news occurring within the Empire, like war. What do you want to know about all of that? Biddy curiously asked. Well, my boss is a merchant, Hisu lied easily. Having information like war, famine, and other things can make their lots of money. Makes sense, Buddy nodded sagely. Well, for one, it seems like Duke Sturm lost the war with the rebels and is on the run. Well, everyone knows that in this town, Hitsu replied quickly. You need to do better than that. But no one knows where he has gone, Buddy retorted back. But I heard a rumor. He leaned forward and tried to act secretive and fading due to his age and size. Hitsu had to keep his laughter down and school his face as serious as possible as he bent down to listen to him. I managed to overhear some of the men that came to buy some supplies that they are heading back to Fallow Fort and something about a keep. Hitsu leaned back unimpressed with the information. They could be anyone just on their way back to Fallow Fall. Yes, but they were wearing heavy armor underneath their cloaks, had been around adventurers to know the difference between the leather armor and plate mail. Billy furiously replied, at this. He looked around the surroundings before taking something out of his belt and placing it in front of Hitsu. A rectangularly shaped palm-sized bronze token laid in the table and Hitsu picked it up, turning it over and seeing a motif of a diving dragon. See, I know the diving dragon is the coat of arms for the duke, and I'm very sure that those are his men. Billy proudly folded his arms. Can I have this? Hitsu asked. I offer you a silver for this, and you know that it's dangerous to carry it around. All right, so does that count as one? But he asked as he held up a silver coin with a motif of a dragon, commonly known as a silver dragon, and pocketed it. The kingdom and nations here had been using the same coinage for the lost ancestral lands, the difference only being the printed surface depended on the nation or kingdom, or but gold coins have been printed crowned on one side. Well, silver coins have a dragon, and a copper coins have a printed shield. Even the weight of the sizes kept the same, making the coinage easy to trade amongst the nations and kingdoms in the new world. Hitsu nodded. Anything else? I heard rumors the new imperial commander is taking over from Duke Sturm. He should be arriving soon. Billy frowned, his thought as he tried to recall the interesting bits of news. His name was quite, uh, cold-sounding. I think it was called, um, um... The stone? The rock? Hitsu asked, as his eyes narrowed. Yes, yes, the rock, Billy grinned. That was what some of the adventurers were discussing the other day. Do you know when he will arrive? Hitsu asked hastily. I think they were saying that he should be here within the month, but he shrugged. Can you try and find out more about when he will arrive? Hitsu asked. Of course, be careful when doing that. I don't want you to get into trouble. He dug another piece of silver dragon and passed it to Billy. Thanks for the information. I'll come down here again tomorrow. You will be here. Of course, I'm here every day, Billy grinned, rubbing the two silver dragons in his pocket happily. Hitsu gave a proper look over the kid, seeing him properly for the first time. He was too focused on his surroundings and said in surprise, You're a girl. What? No, no, Billy's face blushed. I'm a boy. 
She said fiercely, he was dressed in an oversized shirt patched many times over the years. How? How do you know that I'm a girl, she thought. Well, no matter to me, but you should be careful out there, Gitsa said, giving her another ruffle of her shortly cropped curly ginger hair. I'll see you here tomorrow. Billy nodded and went back to the notice board, offering to read and write for people as Hitsu quickly headed out to the guild. Damn, the rock, he muttered, under his breath as he exited the guild. I need to find Chiria quick. He headed towards the merchant district in a hurried pace, totally missing the two pairs of eyes watching him following from the shadows. End of chapter Chapter 115 Officer Cadet School Camp Alpha, Officer Cadet School Joseph Token, a 43 of age, formerly Lord General of the Kingdom of Goldrose, sat in a classroom with several other of his previous army command, taking a class in advanced infantry tactics, learning about the different types of infantry warfare, currently mentored by Major Frank. He and the others were all wearing a standard blue-gray multi-scale camouflage uniform all the military was wearing. Everyone, including him, was his white bar on his shoulders, indicating that they were officer cadets. His class went through basic military training before being fast-tracked to officer cadet school and went through several courses on leadership, tactics and management. He heard that the after the course is over, they will be split into different branches of the military, air, land and sea. The humans didn't treat any of his fellow cadets, including him, with any special treatment, regardless as if they were nobles or commoners of a thousand men before. Even his title of Lord General, he wasn't given any preference. In fact, he was expected to muck around with everyone. Luckily, despite his age, he was still able to keep up with the younger ones, and of course, the strategic use of a restoration spell here and there helped out a lot. But shooting with the M1, Magenock played hell with his right shoulder, and he was just barely managed to scrape by a passing score for a rifleman. All right, this is all for today. Major Frank ended his lecture on the infantry warfare and continued, Read up in Sun Tzu's Art of War. This will be your homework. Attention on deck. The cadets nearest the door stood up and shouted, and everyone stood up and saluted Major Frank, who returned the salutes and left the classroom. Arvin and Rothia gathered next to Joseph's desk and started grumbling. Damn, I was hoping on catching up on some sleep tonight. Guess I'll spend reading instead. Arvin Silverhand used to be a 50-man leader of the Army of Goldrose, and he was recommended to be an officer cadet school after he passed out of basic training due to the leadership skills he displayed in the Second Battle of Sawtooth Mountain Pass. He became friends with Rathia and Joseph during the first week of orientation and stuck close to them ever since. Rathia Redstone, with the other hand, was Joseph's close friend and the second-in-command of the remaining survivors of the army. They'd been through a lot over the years and were lucky to be in the same officer cadet class. Well, it's a very interesting read. In fact, I'm amazed by its contents, Joseph said. The book is said to be over 1800 years old, Joseph added. I doubt that we in the Gold Rose, the Empire, or even the whole New World and the Old World would allow anyone to have access to this material. Both Arvin and Rathia nodded. The humans also made it mandatory for all to take the class on writing and reading, and I wonder how their home city looks like, Arvin commented. All right, let's get to dinner, Rothia said. I'm hungry. I heard tonight they're having some ant meat. 
Arvin and Joseph laughed at Rathia's gluttony, and they packed their stuff up and left the classroom and headed towards the cookhouse. Along the way, they saw the latest batch of marine recruits dressed in fatigues, jockeying towards the cookhouse in step. The interesting thing was that there was Orkins mixed in with the elves. If it was us before, we wouldn't have thought that the Orkins would made a part of our kingdom, Joseph said as they watched the platoon come to a halt before the cookhouse, and the men were dismissed in an orderly manner into the cookhouse, warming lines before the food section. Now we're all part of the brotherhood. The trio entered the cookhouse and headed to the area marked for officers. They hanged their multi-scale camouflage jockey caps on the hangers provided. The food offered was in a style which the humans called a buffet. Food set on trays were laid out over the table, heated with small frames underneath. They could choose what they wanted to eat and how much they wanted to serving themselves. They filled up their plates and found the seats started to dig in. The food was foreign but good compared to what they normally ate in the army previous, and fried or baked potatoes with gravy, boiled carratos, either vermeat or some other monster meat, and a side salad greens. The menu was different every day but repeats every week. As they were eating, Major Frank entered the cookhouse and joined them at the table. His plate piled with a steaming gravy, potatoes, and meat. How are you guys doing? The trio nearly shot up from their seats to salute Frank, who grinned, saying, no ranks in the mess. Joseph grinned. Their time as trainees and recruits had ingrained into them the sense of wanting to greet any officer by saluting or standing at attention. Sir, we're doing fine. Frank continued smiling, digging into his food. Good, you guys will graduate soon. God knows how desperately I need more officers. So, why are we not sent to the pass when the Empire attacked? Rathier asked. It was a sore point between him and Arvin, who had at least fought with the first week of the battle, before getting pulled out to officer cadet school. Simple. You guys are not ready yet, Blank bluntly said. Until you are fully trained to lead in combat, then yes, you guys will be assigned to take over other companies. But we have many years of experience in soldiering, Rathier pushed. Arvin enough. I'm sure that the humans have their reasons for everything. Joseph stepped in, cutting Rathier off. It's okay, we do teach you all to think for yourselves, Frank smiled. First of all, what you all know about combat involves cold steel and tactics and magic, he explained patiently. What you know then of modern warfare tactics is just what you have seen. That's why we are drilling and teaching you all how to fight with modern weapons against an enemy with cold steel and weapons, and also the possibility of enemies having firearms of their own. Frank continued. His small talk had gathered the attention of the other officer cadets, who were having dinner. Until you have graduated, you are still cadets, Frank said. Until then, you will not be risked out of live combat situations till you have all been deemed ready to lead men, despite most of you were already leaders in your own right. Sir, so you mean that we are not ready for this war yet? Someone asked. Yes. Look at all the tactics and weapons the marines are equipped with, Frank said. As officers, you need to know how each weapon works and make split-second decisions. War is no longer taking hours and hours. You don't have messengers running here and there to relay messages, nor do you rely on signal flags. We have set the highest standard for you guys, so as to set the bar for the next batch of officer cadets, you guys will be teaching or leading by example for future generations to come. 
Even then, we are still learning new ways of warfare, Frank admitted, like incorporating magic into our ranks, as it could change the overall battlefield tactics as a result. The cadets nodded and returned to their seats while they digested both the food and the thoughts of the speech given by the Major Frank. Alpha, training camp area C, shoot house. Go, go! The recruit acting sergeant yelled as his section stacked up against the wooden structured door. The leading door barrier fired his breaching shotgun off in the hinges and the lock, while the number two, the orkin who kicked the door down, had lobbed his blue training flashbang, which the men counted down from three to one and then yelled, exploded, before entering the building. Merle stood at the top of the raised platform overseeing the exercise. The shoot house was built like a maze, without a roof allowing the observers to watch what was happening inside. Other than Merle's, other sections and training platoons stood on the platform too, watching the action going on. Cracks of thunder echoed out of the house as the marine recruit section stormed into the house, clearing the rooms and the corridors one by one. The dozens of dirt golems charged towards the recruits as they entered rooms. The golems were conjured up as target practice by Irishwal, who had also had a camp alpha learning on how to be a combat engineer. The golems made out of soil and dirt exploded to bits when hit by the 6.5mm rounds, but some unlucky recruits which did not check their corners had the golems punching them. The soft dirt only knocked them down and not leading with serious changes. Soon, the whole recruit section was breached and the building was surrounded by columns and carried out. Mills shook his head at the section's performance and blew a whistle, before sending a mental command onto the bronze plate with the control to golems, telling them to stand down. That was pathetic, Mills greeted the panting men and the orcs at the entrance to the shoothouse. My grandma can be better than you. Recruit slow, Mills barked. I told you to take three steps in and crouch. He pointed to the orc squatting at the grass. Do you know what is three? Mills held up three fingers. One, two, three. Um, gotcha, corporal. The orc named Slow replied, rubbing his head. Three steps, then knee down. Then why the hell did you not? Mills cursed. You are a freaking huge. Not crouching effectively blocks the whole section behind you. By doing so, no one other than you can open fire. That's how you guys got swarmed, Moles explained. Now we will be doing the same run again, and I expect to see you take three freaking steps to crouch down. Do you understand, Recruit Slow? Um, yes, Corporal. Recruit Slow nodded, his helmeted head bobbing up and down. All right. Show me what you got, or I swear to gods that you guys will keep redoing this run until I'm satisfied. Mills growled at the recruits before turning to rest on the viewing gallery. You guys up there better pay attention too, and don't screw up. The section quickly gathered up and checked their weapons and gear before heading to the starting point. Mills returned back to his vantage point and looked at his watch and blew the whistle, signaling the start of the exercise again, while mentally commanding the golems to be on guard. Pike carried up the platform and stood beside Mills. How are they doing with the training so far? They're pretty tough, top, Mills sighed, but the Yorks are either mathematically challenged or naturally dumb. Other than that, they can shoot pretty well and really adapt to modern tactics pretty well and heavy weaponry. Pike nodded. 
Well, that's the gist of training. We keep grinning them until it's ingrained into the muscle memory, Pike said. Since the Dragon Run, we need a standard operating procedure, or SOP, on clearing dungeons. Heard that it was pretty exciting, though, Balls grinned. Actually, I would want to be posted at the Air Force. I want me a dragon. In your dreams, Marine, Pike shook his head. We need more boots on the ground than in the air now. Well, sooner or later we'll need Marine close to air support. Moles continued to argue. What's better than a 40-ton dragon that breathes fire? Train your men, Marine, Pike rolled his eyes. Get the new batch of recruits trained and ready, then we can see. You got it, Top. Moles rubbed his hands with glee before returning his attention to the action below. What the frick? Recruit slow. Three freaking steps. Not one, not two, but three freaking steps. End of chapter. Chapter 116. First Aerial Prototype. Fall Edge Merchant District. Hitsu stood next to the statue of a wound wolf, waiting for Tyria to appear at the plaza next to the main street that led into the merchant district, tapping his feet impatiently as he waited. The plaza was filled with people and races of all kinds, from the large greenish orchids to the stout and short dwarves. There were even a few mixed breeds in the crowd. Finally, after like an eternity, Hitsu spotted Tyria and his top hat, coat and cane, strolling out of the merchant district. As he was able to approach Tyria, Hitsu spotted some movement at the corner of his eye, and when he turned to look, a couple of shadowy figures ducked out of the sight on the alleyway. Damn! As I followed, Hitsu muttered to himself. I was careless. Tyria spotted Hitsu and the statue of the wolf and strolled up to him. What's up? I've got some important news and also I seem to have picked up some rats. Hitsu wagged his eyebrows to the direction of the alley that his followers had ducked into. Empire or... Tyria asked his eyes narrowed as he gripped his cane tightly. I think it's local thieves. Hitsu gave a shrug. I think I offed a couple of them the other day. Well... It seems it's still too early for lunch yet. Tyria glanced at the sky and grinned. I could do with some exercise. Then, let's do it. Hitsu grinned too, jerking his head towards the alley. As the two of them entered the alleyway, the smell of sewage grew stronger and the sounds of bustling crowd disappeared. Come on out. I know you're there. Hitsu spoke out, his hand on his scabbard. Two figures had detached themselves from the shadows and stood before Hitsu and Tyria, while another two more figures appeared behind them, blocking off the exit route. Well, 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 a third figure appeared in front of them and said, Fancy that, walking right into my lap. The person who spoke was a slime-looking elf with a shifty eyes and a sharp, angular face. He wore a jacket and a long tail coats and trousers with knee-length boots that held an ornately carved staff. On his head, a similar top hat to the Tyria was wearing, resting in an fashionable angle. Hey, pious Kane, it's his pet. So, what do you want? Oh, well, a few of my boys went missing the other day. Kane looked at his nails and buffed them against his coat. I was wondering if you knew anything at all. Those, Hitsu raised an eyebrow. They tried to double-cross me, accepted my money, and attempted to rob me later. I see... But it is bad for my reputation if I allow anyone to off my boys, Kane said, his eyes narrowing. This is a place that you have to pay. Take em, boys. The four henchmen stood forward, drawing short swords and wicked-looking knives, surrounding the two Claymore One members. Tyria gave a shrug and turned to the rear, facing the two at the back while Hitsu deals with the two in the front. 
The two henchmen rushed forward, stabbing towards Hitsu, who eyed the speed and the attack with contempt. His easy sidesteps and first stab and punches out with a leather glove protecting his right fist, catching the henchman in the jaw, shocking his brain and knocking him out with a single punch. The other henchman hacked his sword at Hitsu, who after giving a punch he gave the first henchman, did a roundhouse kick, using his body momentum. The back of his left heel hitting the face of the henchman, breaking his jaw and sending the couple's teeth flying out. Tyria blocked the thrust from the enemies at the rear and countered the one black-handed whip with his cane, drawing a mark across the man's face and sending him scrambling back and crying in pain. He then smacked the second henchman with a cane on his sword arm, breaking bones and a stab with a hard cane's tip in the abdomen, causing the henchman to vomit bile out. Cain stood ashen-faced and watched the four men get taken out easily. Whoa, easy there. He quickly backed off the alley. I was just joking around. Uphold your end of the deal, Hitsu said, or end up worse. Don't worry, we know where to find you. And the two of them left behind moans and groans and pain in the alley. Sawtooth Mountain Pass Marine Support Base the nine-cylinder air-cooled radial engine roared as it pushed the bi-wing prototype out of the hangar and onto the stretch of newly built runway. Spectators lined the sides of the runway with both medical and fire services on standby as they watched the first test flight of the YF-1 Cobra, YF meaning prototype fighter. Flight Lieutenant Peter sat aboard the rear of the tandem cockpit as a pilot and a navigator gunner in front of him, crewed by a test pilot 3rd Sergeant Lego Stilva from the newly formed Air Force. Both of them wore modern parachutes just in case of any failure. They were to ditch the plane and eject out. Despite the disapprovals from High Command and Commander Tommy, Peter forced his way to the test pilot of Cobra, ignoring the risks it may bring to him and the rest of the crew. Using the argument that, other than he and Tommy who was a commander of the Air Force, no one else had actual piloting experience who could fly the plane and provide feedback and comments on the plane's performance. Peter pushed the controls of the plane and responded eagerly to his commands, rolling into the middle of the runway. The two-seater fighter-bomber prototype designated YF-1 Cobra retained several features and looked like the original Aircon DH-2, despite many changes made to the design. The bi-wings were spaced slightly further away from each other in order to reduce aerodynamic interference between the two planes and flaps were installed. The engine used was a 9-cylinder radial engine pushing out a 220 horsepower and the design of the aircraft's hull and wings were streamlined. The cockpit was enclosed in the tandem rather than opened, making the aircraft more sleek and deadly like a dart. Cobra 1 to Eagle Nest, do you copy? Peter radioed into the control tower that was built in a parallel to the runway. Cobra 1 is all green, ready to take off. Eagle Nest to Cobra 1, you are cleared for taking off. Godspeed, over. The control tower responded, you better not crash my plane. Peter grinned as he recognized the voice belonging to Tommy. Roger that, Eagle Nest. Save some champagne for me when we get back. Cobra 1, launching. He pushed the throttle, stopped slowly to 50% to build up the revolutions per minute or RPM while engaging the brakes while setting the flaps to take off mode. The howl of the engine rose as he checked the red and white flag at the side of the runway for the direction and strength of the crosswind. He released the brakes and pushed the throttle up to 75% before getting to taking off 
and slowly pushing it to the max. Then the plane leapt forward, reaching speeds of 100 kilometers per hour, and then the tail started to lift off the ground. Peter pulled the control stick gently, and the plane wheels left the ground. When he reduced the throttle slightly to prevent the engine from overheating, his altitude meter showed him climbing slowly up to 40 meters, 70 meters, and then finally 150 meters. He pulled the stick back and looped the plane towards the airfield, both he and his co-pilot whooping in joy. Cobra 1 to Eagle Nest, we have lifted off. So far, so good. The Rita rodeoed back as he tilted the plane in a gentle curve. She's flying fine. Eagle Nest, roger that. Proceed with test flight, over. Cobra 1, we'll go out. Peter finished the report and engaged the internal comms. Hey, Legus, how are you doing up there? Great! This view is very nice, came back the reply. All right, we're going for the testing objectives, Peter said back. You ready? Got it. Head south-southeast. Lagos read his map chart was secured to his left thigh. At our current speed, we'll be over the objective in ten minutes. Mulko, Peter replied as he piloted the plane towards the testing grounds. Sawtooth Mountain Pass Marine Support Base Air Traffic Control. Captain Blake stood in the spacious tower with clear glass surrounding all sides of the wall, overlooking the long airstrip and a dozen tiny hills each housing a concrete hangar, covered in soil and grass, providing both protection and camouflage from the air. He watched one of the display screens installed in the dwindling stocks of displays on board the UNS Singapore, showing the biplane performing several twists and turns, the live video capturing by the hovering UAV. So far, so good, Commander Tommy said next to Blake. A few more trials and we can go into mass production. Blake nodded. We need to start production as soon as possible, and also have pilots trained and ready with them in a month's time. Tommy raised an eyebrow to his surprise. Why the rush? Well, a few days ago we received intel from the new Imperial commander is on the way over, most likely to take over command for the Empire forces here. Blake replied in a low voice, not wanting the air traffic controllers to hear anything. If the intel is correct, we will be facing another large-scale attack from a more experienced general. Blake continued, I would like to be more prepared this time, especially now that we are fine-tuning the smokeless gunpowder. Tommy nodded, I will do what I can to teach the pilot cadets as much as I can. Luckily, most of the aircraft is made out of wooden glue, modern or magical bonding techniques. Blake said, the native glue made from this ever-blue tree sap works like the aircraft dope, making the hull and wings airtight and weatherproof when dried and set. Seriously, I don't even understand half of all of these words, Blake admitted, for it just says it's magic, just to explain it all. Tommy laughed. Well, frankly, sir, I also don't know how everything works either. My text just tell me everything is being held up by duct tape and magic. Seriously? I'll require a lot from you and your pilots, Blake said. If we can establish air superiority early, this war is half won. Intel is studying both the supply and invasion routes from the surrounding of Sawtooth Path, and also the nearby towns, villages, and cities, Blake continued. Once Intel has been pointed at all important locations, your boys will fly in and bomb the crap out of them. I heard there are new ordnance research division is up, Tommy asked. Yes. I placed my missile and main gun weapon techs and the top with the visor under one roof, Blake replied. I came out with the fuel air mixed for 70mm rockets. 
I have them working on a 100kg general purpose unguided bomb and a 200kg version, Blake grinned. It'll be used for both soft and hard targets. Nice, Toby grinned. Can't wait to test them. Other than bombs, the Ordnance Research Division is also working on a 20mm gun design, Blake said. It should be more than enough against the heavyweight dragons. Sirs, one of the pilot controllers yelled, causing both Blake and Tommy to stop their conversation and look at what the problem was. The whole team of flight controllers stood gawking and pointing at the display, as the image showed a tiny plane dropping out of a control from the sky and a couple of parachutes popped up seconds later, while the plane palmetted to the ground into scrap. Ah, damn, Blake cursed. Back to the drawing board again. End of chapter. Chapter 117. Gunpowder. Ah, frick. Flight Lieutenant Peter gripped the parachute controls as he floated down. His chute deployed automatically. A second white chute was drifting down following the wind, meant that Flight Sergeant Legos had also safely ejected from the dead plane. Tommy is going to tear me a new one for ruining his plane. He had tried a tricky maneuver, going vertically up and dropping all power, letting the plane free fall down before bringing the throttle up. He nearly succeeded. The plane slowly responded to his controls, but it pushed the engine beyond its limits and started to overheat. Red warning lights had lit up and the engine died, sending the plane into a flat spin. Immediately, he yelled for Legos to eject and pulled the release of the canopy where the explosive bolts blew the canopy away, and he waited till Legos had ejected out before he pulled his own ejection bar. As he floated down, a couple of jeeps with red and blue lights flashed and raced towards the landing locations, while another jeep with a half-track headed in the crash plane with the thick smoke brewing out. Most likely, the red fire truck was going to put out the fire. The ground soon reared up to Peter, and he remembering his training, he flared his parachute to keep his knees bent and landed, his momentum making him run running a few paces before he came to a stop. Almost a hundred meters away, Legos also landed, but with more grace than him who gave two thumbs up to indicate that he was alright, after which he started to collect his parachute. One of the jeeps reached to a halt next to Peter while the other jeep headed toward Legos and landed. Any injuries? One of the elves asked. His armband had a red cross. I'm unhurt, just my ego is injured. Peter gave a sigh as he rolled his parachute up. Gonna be a hell of a report to write when I get back. Sawtooth Mountain Pass Marine Support Base CO Office Peter and Lego stood at attention, having a day to recover from the mishap. In front of Commander Tommy's desk, Captain Blake sat in one of the chairs, facing the two pilots, watching them sweat. So, uh, from your report, you tried to pull a stunt, going 90 degrees vertical and flat dropping down into a dive, but was unable to recover due to an engine stalled. Tommy asked sternly, Yes, sir. Peter responded, as per instructions on the test run, I managed to find a way on how the engine will overheat and stall, sir. They gave a bark of laughter. Damn, this kid is good. Tommy's face turned red. God damn it, Peter. You knew that this is a prototype of maneuvers like that, especially on pusher configuration. The engine will stall. Now you have to cost us weeks and months of research and material losses, Tommy scolded. You unlucky the captain didn't want to write you up in charges of reckless and destruction of government property. Calm down, Tommy, Blake said. Good thing the both pilots are fine, and we can always build another plane. 
It is also the purpose of the trial flights to find issues and problems before mass production. Dismissed, Tommy said, waving the two pilots out of his office, who both gave a salute and retreated rapidly. Well, at least we know pushing the engine too hard will cause it to overheat and stall, Blake said. Guess we need a coolant for the engine. Tommy nodded. That's an issue for the pusher engine configurations. It doesn't get cooled as much as a pull configuration engine as the propellers cool the engine. I think the next gen of aircraft will be a traditional engine mounted forward, Blake sighed. New monoplane designs are faster speeds in the future once we have enough materials to construct them, but we're really lacking the skill sets and knowledge on building a proper aerodynamic frame. Luckily, we have a couple more airframes on standby, except that we are not using carbon fiber for the struts and supports, but wood, Tommy said. We don't have that much stock of carbon fiber, nor do we have the capability to produce more. Tommy, mentally calculating, and said, My guys will be able to assemble the remaining two airframes in a day. As for the crash bird, maybe the engine and the cockpit would be salvaged, but the airframe, wings, tail are totaled. We can rebuild it, but it'll take a week or so, Tommy added. At least, the basic flights can be achieved with prototypes. I could get the recruits to start doing practice takeoffs and landings first. The current cadre of training pilots was drawn from volunteers from both the elves and the humans. Some of the crew members had experience in flying hovercars and ultralights as hobbies when on Earth. They applied to be a part of the Air Force when they heard the pilot positions were open. Now, after everyone passed the basic entry requirements, which out of 200 applicants, less than 60 passed, they went through the daily rigorous training, both physically and mentally, as they required a fit, strong body to resist against G-forces, and also the ability to handle stress while making split-second decisions while under fire. Once the other two prototype frames are fitted with the engines, I will start the men on the basics. Once they are ready, they will be doing actual flight, Tommy said. So far, all they were doing was just simulated flying and lessons on tactics and formations. Blake nodded. Do it, but do it safety in mind. I don't want to lose both men and machines to careless mistakes. You got a boss, Tommy replied. One kilometer east of the base colony, our Ordnance Research Division facility. The temperature in the processing room was kept at a cool 11 degrees Celsius, and the pressure machine sat next to the hopper of the chopped greenish yellow shrooms. The conveyor belt system carried a cut shrooms over to the presser, which gently applied enough pressure to squeeze out a thick, colorless, oily substance, which was then passed through a strainer and a filter and collected into a container, which was cooled to a constant 5 degrees Celsius. The collected nitroglycerin was then stored in a freezer only to be taken out when required. The nitro shrooms were harvested from the first level of the dungeon carefully, and its spores collected. A program had begun to cultivate the shrooms outside of the dungeon that had started, and the results were unknown yet if it would be successful or not. At another site, a pulp made from fibrous grass harvested from the plains was soaked in a mixture of nitric and sulfuric solution, after which it was washed and dried. The process is then repeated a few more times before the gun cotton and nitrocellulose is created. The highly flammable compound is also stored at a temperature and shock-resistant environment. Both compounds were gelatinized with a ratio of 65% nitrocellulose to 30% nitroglycerin with 5% resin jelly from the sap of the native everblue trees, forming a spaghetti-like sticks. 
The experiment's smokeless powder was three times more powerful than the current black powder, and the formula used had a flatter trajectory. The current rifle cartridges used could be snortened, reduced weight and allowing for more compact weapons, smaller caliber and more ammunition to be carried. The ordnance team was ecstatic over the development of the new propellant, especially Luther, who almost lost his hand from the accident explosion when he discovered gun cotton. But despite the discovery of the formula of smokeless powder, they still did not have any success in coming up with the primer for use. So the military still has to use fire ruins and the mana stones as the primer and fuses. News of success of creating smokeless propellant had Master Sergeant Pike heading to the Ordnance Research Facility in a rush. He cradled a large, heavy object wrapped in oilskins and forced his way through the security and into the facility. The Ordnance Design Team was called together at one of the conference rooms, and when they arrived, they found a clearly overexcited Pike pacing impatiently at the head of the table, waiting for them, and a large package rested on the table. All here? Pike asked the team as they piled in. I heard you guys had succeeded in making smokeless propellant, yes? The team nodded as one, and Pike's face broke out into a rare smile, surprising the whole team. He went to the package on the table and started to unwrap it the oilskins, revealing a weapon that clearly looks like a machine gun. A single long barrel with a perforated shroud covered the barrel and folded back bipod was attached to a boxy body that ended with a pistol grip and a solid wooden stock. Pike pushed the release clasp on top of the machine gun and lifted it top over the displaying the felt-fed system. The simple iron sight was notched V sight mounted to a post at the rear of the single leaf blade as the front of the barrel. Pike next unrolled the metallic-linked ammunition belt from the bag and placed it next to the machine gun. A new design I came out with recently. I had the fabricators work on it first. That's why I have this here. It is chambered for the current 6.5mm rounds, and I ran a couple of hundred rounds through it already. Pike proudly showed off his weapon. But the black powder, it clogs up the internal mechanism after less than a dozen rounds. He pointed to the ammunition belt and said, That's a non-disintegrating metallic link ammo belt for 50 rounds. Since I had heard you guys manage to come up with a new propellant, I need new 6.5mm cartridges that allow this weapon to find over a thousand rounds without jamming. The team stared at the rowdy discussion amongst themselves as they compared ballistic data. Stop, your machine gun might have to be remodeled, one of the ordnance guys says. The current black powder 6.5mm cartridge case is 75mm long holding a charge of 90 grains or 5.9 grams of black powder. The tech explained, the charge is just enough to propel the bullet at over 650 meters per second. But our new propellant is almost three times more powerful and effective than the black powder formula that we are using now. The tech said, we need to cut down the cartridge length or risk the overpressure which can blow the cartridges inside the chamber and damage the bolted receiver and it will also increase the wear and tear in the internal parts of any weapon greatly. Give us some time to play around with the propellant loads, Luther, with the damaged hand, said. Once we have the science down, we can design a new cartridge out of base to the ballistic data. Pike nodded. I'll leave this here. I still got 20mm autocannon to design out, so I need you guys to help on that too. The team nodded eagerly, crowding around the machine gun and checking it out while discussing what was best way to ammo to be. Oh yeah, 
Since you guys have a new explosive to work with, I expect a new mortar bomb to be replacing our current black powder ones. Pike added just before he left the room, making everyone groan. And traces too, before I forget. Thanks. New ammunition design and mortar bombs for top, and the captain wants improved rockets. A 100 kilogram bomb and a 250 kilogram bomb. Luther grinned, holding up his wounded hand and rubbing it tenderly with his supposed to have an appointment with Doc to fix his hand. Life is getting more exciting here. End of chapter. Chapter 118. Sweet dreams are made of these. The sky turned dark and gloomy as smoking trails of fire streaked across the sky, exploding into small mushroom clouds as they impacted the surface. Mills gripped his M1 mage lock and looked up in horror at the hundreds and thousands of burning spores crashing landing down from space. He yelled as his men made ready, well, he readied his rifle. But to his surprise, there wasn't anyone replying to him. He turned around to check his men, only to find several swarm warrior drones feasting on the torn bits of elves and human parts. Mills screamed, firing his mage lock from his hip, the heavy round barely scratching the thick carapace of the lead swarm warrior drone. His actions caused all the swarm warriors to turn their eyeless heads towards him, and they saw toothed, funnel-like sucking mouths gaping open and screaming an alien cry, before lunging towards him with their many limbs. A thunderous roar of rage erupted overhead, and a heavyweight dragon flapped its massive wings rapidly, holding the huge muscled body hovering over mills. Its shadow blotted out the dim sunlight in the sky, and its great, rund limbs held the massive gatling gun which Mills subconsciously recognized as a 30mm General Electric GAU-8-S Super Revenger, as ancient design over a hundred years old. Except for changes on amateur munition and its material upgrades, it was still in service with the United Nations of Man's military due to its overwhelming firepower. The ammunition feed was looped around the dragon's chest like an old 2D picture of an action war movie. The ammunition feed had the huge ammo drum slung over the back of the dragon's chest. The dragon, which Mills recognized as Blue Thunder, strangely wearing a dark blue beret, reared its head back and blasted a ball of fire into the cluster of swarm warriors in front of Mills, turning them into charcoal. Mills cheered, Go frick them up! Blue Thunder, probably hearing Mills' suggestion, beat his wings even faster and tilted his body upright, while the GAUHS in his arms was aimed at the huge, dark horde of approaching swarm warriors, and he pulled the trigger with his clawed finger. An eardrum-bursting, ripping fire exploded out of the muzzle of the seven-barreled Gatling gun, spewing a mixture of 30mm armor-piercing incendiary and high-explosive incendiary rounds at a rate of 3,900 rounds per minute tore into the mass of aliens, turning them into a bloody chunks of meat and ichor. The powerful recoil forced Blue Thunder backwards, his furious flapping wings to keep him steady. These spent cartridges were recycled back via a double-feed system into an ammo drum. Holy frick! Moles cried out in joy as he watched the massive swarm warriors get cut down by a laser-like gunfire. I am touching myself tonight. He sat down next to the sandbag barrier and watched the light show when suddenly a shadow loomed over him. Ah, frick. He looked up and saw a funnel-like mouth full of teeth stretching over his face. Frack you! 
Moles yelled as he felt something smack him hard at his back. He jerked up and found himself lying face up, having fallen off of his bed and staring at the spinning fan on the ceiling and Bartley looking down sleepily from the top bunk at him and asking, New trend? Frick me, that felt real. Moles groaned as he pulled his legs off the bed and sat on the floor, rubbing a bruise forming on his back. I had a damn realistic dream there. Nightmare. Bartley rolled back onto his back and asked, Yeah, sort of. Dreamt about the swarm, but it had dragons and freaking gatling guns. Moles grinned as he recalled the nice parts of his dream. You've been watching too many anime movies. Bartley's voice drifted down to the top bunk. It's late. Get some more sleep. Night. Damn, I need to drop a suggestion to the Air Force for having dragons with freaking gatling guns. Seacliff Mines, Dungeon Level 1 Sergeant James sat on a stone outcrop of carefully stripped his M2 mage splitter into the individual parts. He started cleaning the barrel and the bolt of his weapon, while others in his platoon did the same. The 1st Battalion Alpha Company, Platoon 2, was involved with clearing the dungeon for the week. They had found out that allowing the dungeon monsters to recuperate for a week or more allowed more optimal amounts of resources to be harvested. If they went in right after the monster respawned, the quality and quantity would be lacking compared to a week later. The monster's quality and quantity would double. Dr. Sharon and Match to Thorn's theory is that the newly respawned creatures are at level zero. Like in a video game, they have not gained any XP. Allowing the dungeon ecosystem to run its course for a week or more, the monsters will gain XP and level up, thus increase their quality. That was why when they first explored the dungeon, the supposed cakewalk turned out to be way harder due to the monsters inside had decades to increase their levels. If the spider ants and the sand scorpions did not have a max growth cap, the exploration would have been even deadlier for them. Alpha Company, 2nd Platoon, had easily mopped up the spider ants and its queen, and even the sand scorpions, but they did not find any champion-rated monsters. There wasn't any new treasure as they did not respawn, and even the ant spider's nest looked emptier than the first time James was here. Several marines carefully cut away bundles of raw silk cocoons and stacked them onto a pile for transportation out to the dungeon. The door next to the level laid against the throne of the queen, which carcass was like a third smaller than the queen James and his team previously defeated. After an hour later, the men of Platoon 2 had rested and resupplied, stood before the large double doors. James nodded to one of the section leaders, who gestured to his section to form up next to the door. Other section leaders also arranged their men behind cover and aimed their weapons at the door as it was opened. A flight of stairs made out of stone led downwards into a hallway where another double door stood. A couple of support techs started unspooling coils of cable down, ensuring that the cables are able to slip under the doors and digging a small trench, allowing the cables to lay inside. The techs buried the cables in concrete to prevent any monsters from chewing or destroying the power on the communication lines and attached lamps and comms arrays onto the ceiling walls. The whole platoon stood around and guarded as the techs worked, and finally, when they were done, James tested the comm and Wi-Fi signal, ensuring all was properly working before getting the platoon to advance to the next step, which was entering level 2. The double doors swung open, and beams of light penetrated the darkness, displaying a large hall filled with pillars of doors leading elsewhere. Set up security, ensure no hostiles in the room, 
James ordered and platoon two spread out into the pillared hall. There were nine massive stone plinders on each side of the carving of dragons, griffins, and some giant bird and another mystical creatures expertly carved into the stone. James stood before the pillar and glanced up. It was at least three stories tall, and the thickness would require three men holding hands to hug the pillar. Clear right, clear left, all clear, room secured. Sarge, we got two doors on each side of the hall. No hostiles reported. Section 1 leader Corporal Tells reported. Get platoon to set up a shop here and the techs to wire up the place, James commanded. Once platoon 3 is here doing security, we will take a look at the door number 1. James pointed at the leftmost door on the far wall. Not long, platoon 3 appeared carrying cases of ammunition, rations, water, medical, aircoms, and censored gear down. Several techs appeared and started to wire the place up for lights and sound. Sergeant Collins grinned as he joined James looking around. Wow, this is like some Indiana Jones crap that we watched the other day, yeah? The Marines started deploying spotlights, which lit up the hall, and the massive pillars cast the sharp shadows against the stone walls. I feel like the grave robber or some villain like in movies who is uncovering some super ancient weapon. James replied to Collins, gesturing with his hands. <laughs> Tell you something, Collins patted his armored shoulder. I always dreamt of digging up and exploring some dark dungeon in the hopes of finding treasure of some sort. Well, it's good if this treasure, James muttered. I don't want to dig up some crazed mad god or a demon. That would be bad, right? Collins' mood turned serious. Damn, you wet blanket. <laughs> James grinned as his friend's serious face. Well, let's pray we don't. Be careful out there, Collins warned. I got you back here. Any crap, just call and we'll be there to pull your rears out of the fire. Sure, James nodded. Don't be late. He walked towards his men, called for them to gather up. All right, platoon three is here and they will be in charge of holding the fort here. James briefed his men. We will do this as we had trained. Make sure to check all corners, including the ceiling. Ready? Always ready. Hoorah! The men chorused, their morale up. Okay, let's go section one, up first, then two, and so on. James ordered as the men arranged themselves and formed up before the first door. Ready? Go. The leading point man tested the door and found no resistance, and pushed the door open gently. His weapon up and ready, Private Green stepped into the doorway, his shotgun aimed left and right, the light showing the corridor that ended in the right turn. The whole place is covered with stone tiles, the roots dangled from the stone ceiling through the cracks, a cold, damp feel washed over Green as he stepped on the moss-covered stone tiles. Unlike the dungeon level above, there wasn't any glow moss in this place. Dean's section one followed several steps behind him as they advanced deeper. Gein quick-stepped around the corner and came face to face with a giant brown-scaled lizard, which reared up in its surprise at the blinding lights. The lizard had come to investigate the sudden light sources, and just as it was about to round the corner, something blaring blinded it. Gein yelled in surprise as the startled lizard spit out its tongue wildly in panic. The lizard's extendable tongue impacted the wall against Gein, which cracked audibly, and Gein squeezed the trigger of his shotgun in reflex. Seven lead balls slammed directly into the lizard's exposed chest, the force tearing up the soft underbelly skin. The lizard's blood and bits exploded out, showering the walls with blood and gore. 
Gein yelled in pain, this time as some fluid from the lizard splashed onto him. The fluid started smoking and eating into his armor and skin. He yelped as he tried to pat away the smoking acid on his armor. He dropped his smoking shotgun, the barrel started to deform as some droplets had landed on the barrel, melting the metal. His section mates rushed over and helped him out of his smoking armor, using water to try and wash the acidic substance away from others' provided security cover. What the frick is that? James came up to the dead lizard the size of a horse. It had two thin crests of bone on the top of its head that looked to frill or gills on the side of its head. It had two short arms and claws with powerful-looking hind legs and a tail. The acidic substance leaking from the thorn chest area was smoking and eating slowly into the rock's surface and giving off a pungent sour smell. That looks like some freaking dinosaur. End of chapter. Chapter 119. Level 2. The lizard bent its hind legs, muscles tightening as it prepared to launch itself out of the cover at the prey approaching it. Its skin tone mimicking the surrounding rock walls, blending it almost perfectly against the background. It dipped its head ever slowly, eyes staring hungrily at its prey standing meters away. A sudden loud crack in the lizard stiffened, as a part of its head blown clearly away and toppled backwards with hardly a sound on its side as it died convulsing. Damn, those lizards are hard to spot. Private Tenoth of Alpha Company, Platoon 1, Section 2, muttered. He turned off the infrasensor, and he used his still warm M1 rifle muzzle to push the all-purpose vision goggles up. He went to the twitching body to ensure the creature was dead and not waving all clear to the rest of the section waiting behind. Scratched one lizard, he reported back to his section leader. Any traps or hidden stuff, his section leader asked, joining him next to the dead lizard, where the section-appointed butcher was doing his grisly work of removing the mana stone. Only this here, nothing else, Tinoth replied. He used to be a forest ranger in the Gold Rose, working as a scout or a trailbreaker for adventurers or merchant caravans. He later joined the army of Gold Rose as a scout when the Empire invaded and managed to survive till now. So far, they had managed to clear two of the four doors, encountering mostly dying dino lizards and more slimes. Nitro shrooms and green moss also grew near in abundance all over the tunnels, they also found a new monster, which was actually a huge grayish-white fluffy ball of fur. It had a rabbit-like face, and it had a long fur growing all over in a ball shape. It seemed to feed mostly on small insects and moss, and was quite docile, allowing the men to pat and cuddle it. The men took to calling them a fluff balls or cotton balls. There was only one other casualty when the unlucky marine got ambushed by a camouflage lizard, getting poisoned, but was saved by his mates in time. James called the lizards the dino lizards, as they looked similar to the Terran dinosaurs, except that it could change its color and blend in with the surroundings, and its tongue could stretch out till over three meters in length. It also has a corrosive spit attack. Using the acid stored in a sack in its chest, the marines learned not to shoot in that area as the acid substance would burst and spray all over the area. They mostly utilized the environment, hunting in every nook and cranny, laying hidden till prey came close enough for them to leap out and attack. The terrain was similar to level 1, mostly rock walls and open caverns, but instead of ants, the dino lizards dominated the level instead. 
Magister Thorne, overseeing the operation and the safety of the ops room, commented on the lizard saying that it was a type that he had not seen or read before, while Dr. Sharon was interested in the ability to create highly concentrated bioacid and clamoring for the marines to bring her an intact specimen, if possible alive, which James kind of ignored her, sending her a dead specimen instead. The platoon encountered a fire beetle nest in the third door, where the champion was found. The champion fire beetle had a shiny red back armored carapace and curved horn like a Hercules beetle, and it was huge, almost the same size as a jeep. The smaller, weaker fire beetles tittered in anger as the elves entered the nest cavern and set up on them with arcane balls of fire. The section entered the nest, scrambled for cover, and called for backup, which the rest of the platoon responded. They fooled the mage-locks in return to the fireballs cast by the beetles from the combined cover, while the beetles stood in the open ground. Each lesser fire beetle was the size of a large dog, fat and roundish like a ladybird beetle, except for the shell was dark crimson red instead of brightly cheery red. The lesser fire beetles were easily taken out by twenty rifles and shotguns as they charged and stood in the open, while the champion beetle was ignored. After the lesser fire beetles were cleared, James ordered the platoon to fall back out of the nest and using a narrow tunnel to funnel the champion into the line of sight of fire. The champion, taking the bait of retreating marines, charged angrily after them, entering the tunnel where the rest of the platoon had formed up a firing lines. Fire! James yelled when the retreating men were under cover and out of the firing line. The champion beetle could only head in one direction due to the narrow tunnel, and the men could not miss it all. Five claymores planted beforehand also detonated as one as the champion closed in, spewing their load of steel balls and bearings directly into the charged champion beetle. When the dust cloud settled, the once magnificent-looking beetle, which was glossy shell, looked pitted and worse for wear. Its horn had even broken off, the combined firepower had stopped the champion in its tracks, and it died without even chasing a simple speller attack. The marines raided the nest next, finding eggs and larvae of the fire beetles and a small mound of discarded beetle shells, which could be used to make armor or other products. A treasure chest was also found, and several more bottles of healing potions and magic potions were recovered. The men also found a small pile of gold, silver, and mana stones scattered all over the nest making the men grumble as they had to comb and collect the treasures one by one all over the nest. Tanoth grumbled as he bent down for the twentieth time, picking up a piece of glittering gold and dropping it together with the other valuables he collected into an upheld helmet. Heavens, he moaned, I didn't think that I would rue the day that complained about collecting gold from the floor. He stretched his aching back. The nearby men laughed as they also stopped to stretch their backs as they had been collecting the valuables on the floor one by one for the past half an hour. James watched the men who faced death earlier, laughing and joking, as they went about their duties and smiled proudly, knowing that these men would stand facing death laughing. Collecting the champion beetle's carcass was the worst. The foul-smelling liquid was discharged from its body, and due to its weight, the men had to make use of two support columns to lift it out of the dungeon and from the champion it yielded a humongous fire manastone, which made Magister Thorne watching behind the cameras mounted on the men whoop with joy. Once the clean work was done, the platoon returned back to the staging point to resupply and rest. 
Pop Platoon 3 did a second sweep through the areas that were cleared and also transport all the dead creatures for processing and research. Collins rolled the clear crystal's vial on the dark red liquid sloshing inside over his gloved palms before holding it up against the glare of the spotlights and observing the red liquid. Strange how something like this could heal and regenerate body cells. James was dry jerky, swallowing a mouthful of cool spring water from his canteen before saying, Yeah, but isn't our nanomachines the same? Collins raised an eyebrow at James, chewing away at the jerky in his mouth. Serious, this crap here is made using magic, while nanomachines is made using science and technology. James gave a shrug as he swallowed the jerky in his mouth. Well, I reckon that the elves just went down another path, while we humans went down the science path. Who knows, maybe a thousand years, the elves might have some magical construct allowing them to travel in space. True, Collins nodded before returning the heating potion into a matte black foam-covered shock-resistant case with the rest of the potions, closing and locking the case. Still, it's amazing they can do the stuff we only see and read of in movies and books. Yeah, I always wanted a dragon, James grinned. Hell, if we had some close-in-air support dragons, I think we could easily have fought the Empire early on. Well, if wishes were horses, beggars would ride. Collins grinned back, slapping James's back. We do have dragons now, and I heard the Air Force has some prototype planes up and running already. Not only that, High Command wants to project our forces outwards once the second batch of recruits has completed basic. Hell yeah! James dusted his hands and kept his canteen. It's about time we show those blue boys who's the boss here. We can't have them thinking that we're their witches, able to come and go as they please. Hoorah! Well, it's time. Collins checked his watch and said to James, who nodded and started to strap his armor on with Collins's help. I had Platoon 3 double-check all the doors again to make sure they'd all been cleared, leaving the last room to be the boss and the entrance to the next level, untouched for your Platoon 2 boys. The rest of the men of Platoon 2 were also getting ready, helping each other get into gear. James nodded as he checked his gear while Collins continued his report. We tried to scan the interior of the boss room, but there was a magical interference, making the scans wonky. We did pick up something conflicting lime science inside, but the system can't nail it down. All we can say is that it's a huge room, almost twice the size of the room with the contacts inside. Yeah, freck. James cursed. The hall with the pillars where Platoon 2 and 3 had set up shop was roughly 28 meters in length and 11 meters wide. As for what is behind the doors, Colin shrugged, we can only guess what it could be. More dino lizards, James guessed, or a super dino lizard, or maybe a giant fluff ball. He gestured towards a few cages holding the fluff balls waiting to be transported up to Dr. Sharon's labs. Well, maybe... Collins replied seriously, we found no other way into the room, so it is not like the first level of this dungeon where the ant's nest is open. Seriously, we have no idea what's inside, so uh, be careful. James gave an assuring smile to Collins. Got it. Well, if it's some super lizard or heavily armored beetle, we do have a new trick up our sleeves. Collins looked over at some of the platoon two men lugging around a large tube on their backs. Let's hope it works like it did during the fly-fire exercises. We tested it and have practiced with it extensively for this. James gestured to his surroundings. It'll be a waste not to be able to use it in the end. Disappointing, in fact. Then why didn't you use it in a tunnel for that? 
Collins pointed to the dead champion beetle secured on the pallet. Too crowded, and despite it being a recoilless system, the back blast can still kill or wound, you know. James worked the bolt of his M2 rifle, making sure that it was empty before slapping in a fresh magazine and pulling a charging handle back, chambering the round, before putting it under unsafe. I wanted to see what the claymores can do to armor in an enclosed area. You can still joke around at a time like this. Haven't you thought about what the claymores couldn't stop it? Collins frowned. Hey, don't forget about your girl. You need to make it home in one piece, all right? Got it, Dad, James grinned. Well, I did have a fallback plan for that. James, come on, be more serious, Collins lectured. We don't know what's behind the doors. You are to take all precautions, understand? Yeah, gotta go. Bosses to kill and dungeons to clear. End of chapter. Chapter 120. The Fog. The men formed up silently next to the double doors leading into the final room of the dungeon, where they expected the boss of level 2 to be inside. Private Tanoth tested the door handle, giving it a gentle pull, opening it up a tiny crack. He turned and nodded to the section leader who returned his nodded, and Tanoth pulled open the flexible fiber camera scope, crouching next to the crack and gently inserted the flexible camera into the door crack, using a handheld device and observed the interior of the room. As the scans earlier taken from Platoon 3 had shown, the room stretched over 50 meters deep and 20 meters wide. The night vision of the camera could only pierce up to roughly 20 meters before everything was too dark and unclear to scope more. Tenoth twisted the camera left and right, taking in the whole room, while James watched the video on his tablet. Looks clear, Tenoth whispered. He checked his motion and heartbeat tracker issued only to point men and couldn't find any movement nor heartbeats, only static showing up on the screen. Damn, too much interference, either magical or natural here, he whispered to his section leader. James keyed in the mic and ordered the whole platoon. Go deliberate, slow and steady. Tenoweth kept his gear and slung his weapon, taking in a deep breath as he gathered his nerves. Go! His section leader slapped his shoulder, indicating him to move in. Tinnerworth pulled the door open and stepped in towards the right, while his section mate behind him rushed in and covered the left with a section leader coming up third covering the middle. Tinnerworth received another slap on his shoulder, pushing in towards the corner of the room, his flashlight illuminating pillars and the man-tall blocks of stone scattered all over the area. The rest of the platoon entered the section by section, and very quickly all four sections of seven men each had entered, covering the entire area. Move in, James ordered to the men moved up, checking everywhere of the room. The lights from their weapons stab out the few meters before drowning in the darkness. It appeared that the darkness in the pillared room was absorbing the light. Corporal Tiles from Section 1 whispered next to James, Sarge, I don't like this very much. As they advanced deeper and deeper, chunks of rocks, some larger than a half-track, laid haphazardly all around the area, next to pillars with carvings similar to the ones in the first room. The temperature appeared to drop and a fog appeared before them, making most of the men curse. Halt, James ordered as he looked at the fog. Point men, what do you see? The point men equipped with infrared goggles tried to peer through the fog but couldn't find anything. Nothing, Sarge. No heat signatures nor movement on the sensors. 
came back the replies. Up flares light up the place, James commanded. The point men dug into their pouches, removing flare guns, salvaged from the spaceship's lifeboats, and fired into the fog. Four blazing balls of reddish glare erupted out and flew into the fog, before hitting the ceiling and bouncing to the ground. Also, immediately the howl burst from the inside the fog as the men tensed and readied up their weapons. Back, all sections fall back, James yelled. I want distance from the fog now. I got movement, Turnworth yelled, as the M314 motion tracker beeped rapidly. The sensor turns coming from within the fog as he backed away from it. Suddenly, dozens of fluff balls bounced out from the fog, and the marines snapped their rifles up ready to fire when the roar broke out from within the fog. Back! The section leaders yelled at the men as they moved away from the fog and whatever was inside. The glow of the red flares cast shadows on something moving within the fog towards them. By this time, they retreated back to the fall end of the room where the exit was and took cover amongst the rock debris and stone pillars. That doesn't sound very good, Corporate Tulls muttered. Sarge, permission to prepare the bazookas. Just as he finished saying that, suddenly a reptilian shape started out of the fog and the men opened fire at the hissing creatures. Contact! The men yelled and fired the leaping lizards. Some of the men screamed as the lizards spat globs of corrosive acid that ate into their armor, melting away skin and flesh. Others cry out in surprise as some lizards whipped their long, fleshy tongues that glued their bodies, pulling with an overwhelming force to the owner's tooth-filled, gaping mouths. There's too many of them. They're everywhere. Help! Someone! The screams and cries rang out from amongst the marines as a flood of dino lizards slammed into them. James cursed, wished that he had a machine gun or two. Grenades, he yelled. Use them. Several yells of fire in the hall followed after his instruction as the nearby marines took the Zui's order, pulling out the pin and attached to the head of the cast iron oval-shaped metal ball, triggering a heat ruin that slowly heats up to over 300 degrees which will ignite the black powder packed into the grenade. Unlike modern-day grenades, these do not have a safety lever and require a operator to throw the grenade once the heat ruin was activated, as the heat ruin with the ignition temperature of the black powder within three to five seconds. The grenades flew over the heads of the besieged marines, landing amongst the herd of dino lizards, and detonated one after another, spewing out lethal shards of shrapnel, tearing and stunning the creatures within the blast radius of three meters each. Due to the sudden grenade barrage, the pressure against the marines dropped as the lizards cringed in surprise and were confused from the explosions, allowing the marines to rapidly take advantage of the situation and turning it around. The marines fired their M1s and shotguns into the cluster of dino lizards, the heavy lead balls blowing away scales of the lizard flesh, drenching the rock ground with dark red lizard blood. Just as it happened suddenly, the lizards retreated back into the fog in terror from the onslaught of the marines. Corporal Tal spat out a glob of blood from his mouth from the cut in his mouth as he took a hit to the jaw by the whipping dino's tail. He gave his machete sword an expert flick, flicking off the blood and returned his sword into the scabbard attached to the tactical rig on his left thigh. He then transferred his emptied revolver to his right hand and started reloading it, while keeping an eye on his dropped M1 Bechnock dropped somewhere in the melee. Check your ammunition, medics to the wounded, the rest keep watch and be ready. 
James' voice could be heard over the cries of pain and curses. James moved amongst the men, seeing the carnage wreaked by the dino lizards. Several were outkilled by the acid spits, and only a pile of smoking and bubbling skeletons remained, with intact arms and legs remaining behind. Even the weapon's armor and gear were melted through. The lucky ones managed to remove their armor before the acid ate through them, but still suffering burns to the arms and legs. The medics were busy using water and healing magic to neutralize the acid burns, and James ordered everyone to pass their water over to the medics to use it to wash the acid off the victims. Other than the vicious acid attacks, the rest of the men mostly suffered cuts and bruises from the claws and bites, which, given a healing spell, managed to stop all the blood and mild poison inflicting from the lizards. Sarge, we got five deaths, all of them corrosive attacks, another four in critical condition from burns, and two more due to having serious injuries from getting mauled, another fourteen with varying degrees of wounds, but still combat effective. Corporal Tells reported, the men are doing fine despite the losses and injuries. Tells jerked his head towards the fog in the distance, and it seems like they're in mask again. Plant K-Moles, I want two-tier defensive line, James ordered. Evacuate the wounded now. Tiles nodded and headed off to relay James's order, barking out instructions to the platoon. James keyed his commands to the platoon leader's channel. Apache 2 to Apache 3 over. Apache 3 send. Apache 2 request immediate medevac and support over. Apache 3, roger. ETA 5 mics out. James ended his comm and looked around, seeing the men deploying claymores and the section leaders directing the lanes of fire. The badly wounded were strapped onto a foldable stretchers by the medics and were being relayed to the exit. Here they come, someone yelled, followed by a box of gunfire. The dino lizards burst out of the fog again, but this time the marines were ready and not distracted. They fired at the charging lizards with an accurate fire as the lizards entered the lines of fire, sending them toppling down and forcing the rest of the lizards to hop over or swerve to the side to avoid the falling herd. The defensive line to the fog was roughly 30 meters away, and with the speed of the charging lizards, they can close a short distance in less than 5 seconds. The clay moors were deployed earlier were rigged and tripwires by the marines, detonating as the leading dino lizards tripped the wires. The shotgun blasts like explosions, swatting the charging lizards away like giant hand, leaving behind bits of gore and blood. The marines cheered and laughed at the gory screen, redoubling their efforts at shooting the remaining stunned lizards. The marines cheered on. A sudden roar blocked their cheers, and a massive shape broke out of the fog. Oh, Fark, Tanoth cursed as he looked up at the towering behemoth, but fearing for the frog. He emptied his shotgun at the monster and died when its tail whipped the pillar that he was taking cover from, getting two others at his section. James cursed. A freaking T-Rex? You gotta be kidding me. The behemoth that appeared from the fog looked similar to a Terran extinct dinosaur, the Tyrannosaurus rex. It had silverish scales with a coarse-like crystal jutting out from parts of its body and tail. The neck is longer compared to a T-Rex, and it has thicker and longer forelimbs. Used the bazookas, James yelled as he fired his M2 uselessly at the behemoth, keying his communication. He screamed into it, Dungeon Ops come in, this is Apache 2. Are you seeing this crap over? Oh yes, what an amazing specimen! Magister Thorne's voice replied excitedly. 
Fark that, James cursed. What is that, and how do we take it out? Hmm, came back the reply which made James grit his teeth in frustration. God damn it, Dungeon Ops, people are dying here, James cursed in his calm. Apache 2, this is Dungeon Ops. Wait one, over. Another voice cut in, and the comms went silent. Frick! James cursed, just as the reinforcements from Platoon 3 arrived. His own heavy weapons team and his platoon ready to tube their shoulders, their buddies slapping their shoulders and yelling, Ready! into the ears as they plugged the fire runes into the rear of the tubes. Lance Corporal Abertina placed a simple wire crossing sights over the center mass of the behemoth as they were taught. Previously, he worked as a miller, grinding grains in flour and the mill that he worked in the outskirts of the capital. When the Empire attacked, he got caught up in the battle and was conscripted to help man the ballista in the city walls. He was credited with two lightweight dragon kills and four troll kills with the ballista he was crewing. The commander on his wall was so impressed with his skills that he got awarded an army position and was given command of four ballistas on the wall. Now he kneed amongst the stone debris of the blood-soaked ground, aiming a metal tube at a monster over twenty times his height. Ready! His assistant gunner yelled at his ear, snapping hard at his shoulder armor. He squeezed the trigger with a loud whoosh, burst out from the tube, and the dark dart streamed with fire and smoke slammed into the monster. Round one, away. End of chapter. And that, my friends, concludes this video. I hope that you enjoyed. If you did, please consider supporting the author from the link down below. Otherwise, if you wish to support this channel, there are numerous ways to do so, like liking, subscribing, and possibly even becoming a patron. Otherwise, the easiest way would be to share. And until the next video, I hope that you all have a good one, and I'll see you then. Cheers.